Good evening. I would like to call to order this City Council meeting of September the 5th, 2023. Tonight's meeting is a hybrid meeting. Community members are welcome to join us either in person or remotely through Zoom or by telephone. Clerk, will you please call the roll? Councilmember Nixon? Here. Councilmember Black? Here. Councilmember Curtis? Here. Councilmember Falcone? Here. Councilmember Pascal? Here. Deputy Mayor Arnold? Here. Mayor Sweet? Here, thank you. Our study session tonight is on two topics. First, a preliminary update on the 2023-2028 Capital Improvement Program. And second, a review of the future of Park Lane study findings. We expect to reconvene our regular meeting at approximately 7.30. City Manager. Okay, thank you, Madam Mayor. Um, so just a general public service announcement. Uh, just before the council meeting, we blew a fuse in our HVAC system in the chambers, which unfortunately we don't have that fuse to replace tonight. So fortunately it's a reasonably good day outside, but if it gets a little hot here, we can bring in some more fans. Uh, this may not be an issue now, but as we get closer into the evening, it could be an issue. Um, but tonight we have two topics. The first is to talk about our CIP update. Uh, the purpose of this is a check-in for council, and then we'll be bringing this back in November, December for final action. So I want to update you on any changes. We do have one policy issue, which is a discussion of real estate excise tax reserves, and then a second discussion on Park Lane. So here to do the CIP project update is our financial planning manager, George Dugdale, and our financial planning supervisor, Kevin Pelstring. Thank you, city manager. Good evening, Mayor. Welcome, George. Good evening, Mayor, council members. Um, as the city manager said, we, our first part of our study session is on the update to the 2023-2028 Capital Improvement Program. So I'm going to introduce the topic, and then Kevin Pellstring, our financial planning supervisor, will go through the, um, the details of the project changes. We have about 20, we have 24 slides for you this evening. We walked through some of the policy highlights, some of the, the REIT reserves, and then also the detailed project changes. So before I hand over to Kevin, I just want to pull up the goals of the update. So as council knows, this is not a full new capital improvement program. And at the moment, there are a number of items, the transportation management plan, uh, transportation master plan rather, and some other significant planning processes underway. Um, and so we have more kind of updates to the current CIP and some kind of changes to projects rather than new thinking and a lot of new projects. Um, we do have changes related to work pro program items. We have updates to project timing. We have some changes in funding sources. And then as mentioned previously, we have some changes to the REIT reserve policies. The primary goal for, for this um, biennium and this biennial budget is delivering the projects that are already underway. Some of these have been impacted by elevated inflation, which we've discussed before at, at retreats and at council meetings. And the, some of the impacts of that will be seen as we get into the budget. Uh, into the projects themselves. So I'm going to hand over now to Kevin, who's going to walk through the specifics of the projects. All right, can I just pause for a second, Mayor? We're having uh, some trouble with the audio, and then I'll clerk if we have a way for the loop to be connected. We have closed caption up at the top. Okay. Uh, so closed captions on this screen. Okay. Hold on one second, we'll make it a little bit larger. So, I have some guests here who are having a hard time hearing, so thank you. 
Say that out of the mic if they have. So for the loop system, for existing hearing aids should be able to pick up the system that's already embedded in the room. All right, testing. I'm getting a thumbs up. Okay, thank you, everybody. Thank you, Madam Mayor. All right, thank you. <clears throat> thank you, George. Uh, good evening, Council, Madam Mayor. Um, my name is Kevin Pelstring. Again, I'm the Financial Planning Supervisor. Uh, good to see you this evening. Um, so, as George mentioned, we're going to go through um, some of the updates. Uh, we'll start kind of at a high level of the CIP update, and then we'll get into some of the specific project updates. And um, I'll go through some of it rather quickly, but there's a lot of text on the slide, so please stop me if you have uh, specific questions about any specific projects that you want to uh, talk through. Uh, so here's our summary by program. You can see the adopted uh, funded CIP uh, as adopted in December 22. Uh, and then here's the August or now September update uh, for both the funded and unfunded numbers. Uh, transportation is, is uh, increased the most out of all the different programs. And that's um, mainly due to uh, additional investments in the 100th, 124th, uh, Juanita Drive uh, new scope. Um, and a new street preservation program scope. Uh, and you'll see that the surface water unfunded CIP has changed quite a bit too, and that's uh, reflecting some um, updates in the uh, costs of projects that are in that list uh, following the completion of the, the surface water master plan. And now for the capital funding sources, so this shows all the available or projected available balances for each of our main capital funding sources in the CIP uh, as, as of the end of 2024 uh, and our additional or recommended uses in the 23-24 um, budget as part of this update. Um, parks impact fees, you can see that we programmed about f uh, just under 500,000 in parks impact fees above budget in 23 to a number of projects that I'll go through. Uh, REIT 1 is mainly uh, going to the Houghton Village Capital Improvement Project, uh, and REIT 2 is going to 100th and 124th projects, as we discussed. Um, and then you'll also see the CIP policy reserves, so REIT 1 and 2 uh, show that's a $1 million reserve in each of those, um, and I'll go into a little bit more detail about that existing policy and then uh, potential alternatives for a new policy. Uh, so for real estate excise tax, uh, this is one of our largest uh, capital funding sources. We track it very closely because it um, is very um, elastic to the, the real estate environment. Um, as you can remember, we increased the budget from about $4.5 million in 2022 to $11 million in 2023. Um, <clears throat> currently, we are running uh, a little behind our $11 million target. Um, <clears throat> we are expecting to hit about $10 million, uh, barring any other large transactions in the second half of the year. Um, and uh, this includes receipts through the first half of the year and project a small slowdown in the second half, um, given we had a $64 million transaction in March that we don't anticipate will happen again. Um, and then again, there's about $4.2 million of REIT 2 reserves programmed in the update for 100th and 124th projects. Uh, and we'll bring back uh, updated balances and projections in the uh, November CIP update. Um, so uh, following council feedback, now that we've increased the REIT budget, we wanted to come back with um, some potential alternatives for uh, re 
thinking how we do REIT, uh, REIT reserve policy. So I wanted to bring up the, the current capital reserves that we have and other earmarked uh, funding for specific purposes on the capital side. Uh, so our main uh, capital <clears throat> reserve is the general capital contingency, which is just over $6 million. Um, and that is equivalent to 10% of the funded two-year CIP budget, uh, less our utility funds and debt proceeds. Um, so that's pretty reactive to the size of the CIP, uh, and we calculate that every two years during the um, biennial budget development. Uh, the second one, the Capital Improvement Project Reserve, is actually our REIT reserve, or what we typically uh, call our REIT reserve. Uh, so that's $2 million. Again, it's $1 million in each of REIT 1 and 2. And I'll go into a little bit more detail about that in the, uh, the next slide. Um, I also wanted to bring up, uh, there are two other capital projects, the Property Acquisition Fund and the Neighborhood Parkland Acquisition Fund, uh, with bo which both have uh, significant um, balances in them, and, and those are have specific uses. Uh, one, the Property Acquisition Fund is about $3 million, and that's for the strategic acquisition of property for public use, as recommended by the City Manager's Office. And then we have uh, the Neighborhood Parkland Acquisition Fund, which is just over $4 million. Uh, and that's for acquisition of land for new neighborhood parks um, driven by the, the pros plan um, results. So the REIT re reserve policy options, so again, uh, following council feedback, uh, we did uh, provide a few different options and analyze what uh, the reserve policy could look like going forward. Uh, so that current policy reserves $1 million in each REIT 1 and 2 to leverage external funding when the opportunity arises and to provide flexibility for project scope changes and unanticipated costs. Uh, this has been a pretty fungible reserve on top above that uh, $2 million target, um, so it's allowed for a lot of uh, a funding of a lot of different projects over the last few years. Um, now that the budget is much higher, uh, the expectation or the possibility that we um, are uh, not reaching our annual budget in re, um, revenue is more likely. Um, so we analyzed four different reserve policy options for the REIT fund in addition to the existing capital reserves. So it's a little confusing, uh, but it, the one, two, and four are uh, opportunities to replace the current policy, and the number, the third one uh, is actually in addition to our current policy of two millions reserves. Um, so I'll go through each of those uh, and some of the, the pros and cons. Um, the first one, 15% of the past five years average annual total. Uh, so over the past five years, we've received 14.4 million of REIT uh, revenue. So 15% of that is 2.2 uh, million. So that's pretty close to our current target. Um, the, the benefits of this approach would that it would be proportionate to the level of, um, of, the, of the CIP and it would allow us to build reserves in stronger years and also uh, draw them down in, in leaner years of, of REIT reserves. So it would be a little bit more reactive to what our current uh, REIT revenue has been like. Um, and although it's currently close to our two million, if those REIT revenues were to fall over the next few years, that would go lower and potentially go below the, the $2 million target that we have currently. Um, the second option, again, is, is an option alternative to replace that, uh, or sorry, is, is the existing policy and just to continue that and have $2 million in reserves. Um, the third policy is in addition to our current policy. So um, it would establish a new matching fund reserves of $500,000 for each REIT 1 and REIT 2. Um, and that would serve as an opportunity for um, if, if the department is, is uh, going out for federal or state grants, um, it would serve as, as kind of a pot of money to, to be able to use for, for match funding. Uh, and it would be 
um, a much easier way for staff and for agencies to recognize that we have matching funding um, there. Um, and then finally, number four, which is not recommended by staff, is uh, to establish a higher set amount of roughly $5 million instead of the $2 million that we currently have reserved. Um, this is uh, proportionate to how much we had in prior years, roughly, uh, where we had about $2 million reserved on an annual $4.5 million budget. So this keeps that proportion uh, roughly equivalent. Um, however, this would be, in addition to the general capital contingency, uh, would be almost double that, um, and we staff uh, recognizes that that would be a significant amount of money um, frozen that wouldn't be able to be invested in current uh, project needs. Um, so wanted to give some time um, back to you, Madam Mayor, for council discussion, comments, questions. Council discussion? Uh, Councilmember Nixon? Thanks. Um, can you remind us um, for our other reserves, um, how do we typically set the target? Is it a percentage of a rolling amount from preceding years, or is it a flat amount, or is it a, a mix of those? And what's the justification for choosing one over the other in our other reserves? Um, we can come back with all of those more detail, but it's definitely a mix. So there are some that are that are um, firm targets um, for specific uses, and then there are some that um, are calculated every two years based on a certain percentage of of some um, expenditure. So we can provide that in more detail. But um, I think overall having something that's a percentage of the CIP in this case just allows us to have something that's proportionate. So the you know overages and projects are going to be a little bit closer uh, to what that uh, percentage is versus just having a set amount that might become far too small to basically cover any sort of revenue shortfalls. Um, but we can provide that list in more detail. I would add. Oh, go ahead. I was just going to add, there's also some language in the financial policies about which reserves to use when, and there's also some um, depends on how flexible the fund needs to be. You know, for example, you can't use you know, utility monies to do something that would uh, benefit the general fund, as an example. So some of it's a case-by-case -case basis. Some of it's the way the money comes from, and some of it's the financial policy direction, and some of it's council direction when we come back to you and say, how would you like us to do it? And do you think it's necessary to keep the REIT reserve separate from the general capital reserve instead of having a combined target for all of that together because of the restrictions on how REIT can be used? I personally would recommend that. I think uh, finance would as well for that reason. Yeah, since it is uh, prescribed by state law what you can use it for and the general fund you can use for a lot more flexibility um, for other types of projects. Um, and you can also, by council action, move monies in and out of the reserves, but you couldn't move REIT to do something to support the general fund, as an example. Mm -hmm. So I think keeping them separate does make sense um, because they have a little bit of different uh, usability. Well, personally, I, pr I prefer the option one. I don't know about the 15%, whether that's the right number or not. It looks like it would have to be something like 35% to get us back to what the $2 million original target was years ago. Um, but uh, I like the idea of, number one, having it be a rolling average so that a single low year doesn't mean that you are free to eliminate the reserves, basically. Um, and, uh, but, I, but I like the fact that um, it stays, it automatically adjusts based on what the CIP is. 
Thank you. Thank you, Councilmember Curtis. Thank you, Madam Mayor. Thank you, Kevin. <clears throat> On option three, you just said that the extra 500,000 makes it easier to show that we have the matching funds. Can you just walk me through what the process is now and how that would be different? Um, so currently when we're going out for uh, a grant, we have to point that there is existing funding allocated to that. So oftentimes we're looking at the, the CIP and showing that this specific project has funding uh, in it in the six year funded CIP. Um, so we often have to make sure there's a difficulty in making sure that we have uh, funding already in that project, but not enough that we would um, no, noting that we still need some funding from for the grant opportunity. So it's usually in a project by project basis where this would be kind of a CIP wide funding that we could say we have funding allocated and we don't have to get as specific. I don't know if Rod, if you have anything else to say on that. Just a question to follow that one. So essentially, that would be a, if we were to continue doing the one million, and then we added the five hundred, it would simply increase our ability to fund projects in a way that somebody else would see the matching fund and be able to qualify us for those kinds of grants. Yes, correct. And the total would be three million. Councilmember Caspel. Thank you, Madam Mayor. Well, I'm glad we're looking at this. I mean, we haven't really adjusted our policies for REIT in a while, and REIT has increased over time, but we know it's volatile because of the uh, real estate market and project costs. You know, I, personally, I was, I, I'm really interested in that option three with the matching fund reserves, and there's two reasons, and you kind of hit on the first one. The one is that... Um, we might be, it allows us to go after, go after projects that, that could be really well positioned for grants, but might not be um, our highest priority. And so therefore not show funding in our CIP. Um, I'd like, you know, it's, I'd like to still be, be able to go after those and, uh, and get some outside money to, to build things. The second reason is that having that grant funding increases the score of projects. Oftentimes when you're going after grants, um, the more you match, the more you put your you know skin in the game, um, that can that can result in in higher selection um, um, odds. So, those are two things that I'd be interested in continuing to look at. That, if Mayor Arnold. Thank you, Madam Mayor. I like the option uh, one in that it grows with um, revenues when we have higher years. But I'm wondering, Kevin, about the possibility of a hybrid, because I also, the memo talks about the potential of that actually dropping below our current two million, depending on how things flow. Could we set a floor and say we have at least two million, uh, but then have 15% uh, <clears throat> as things grow? Sure, yeah, that's definitely uh, something that we can, we can bring back as well. Okay, thank you. Councilmember Black. Thank you, Madam Mayor. Uh, well, thank you, Kevin, and thank you, George. Um, so I definitely like the idea of number three. Uh, I like that it puts us in a better position than we are today to secure other people's money for the projects that help people in Kirkland. Um, so definitely um, would support that. I was initially, uh, like uh, Councilmember Nixon, very attracted to uh, one. I appreciate the work that went into that. Would by, I understand you and George sharpened your pencils as to coming up with something that was creative. And I really like what you guys have come up with there. 
The simplicity of two, there's something to be said about that. And frankly, I really like what Deputy Mayor suggested, um, creating a, a floor so the city of Kirkland as residents know uh, that there's a minimum amount available for these type of projects, but then um, uh, that's consistent with what we have today. Uh, and then having it um, adjust uh, rateably as, uh, with a five-year look back. So I guess, um, I guess I'm going to throw my weight behind uh, the suggestion that Deputy Mayor uh, made, uh, at least to the extent I'm, I guess I shouldn't assume uh, that he would also support uh, uh, number three along with the, uh, the sliding scale and the, and the minimum floor. So thanks. Uh, Councilmember Falcone, or, or Deputy Mayor Arnold, did you want to respond? Councilmember Falcone. Thank you, Madam Mayor. Uh, well, I was going to say something very similar to Councilmember Black in that I um, I like uh, Deputy Mayor Arnold's um, comments related to a hybrid of number one and having a floor. And I wonder, was going to propose a hybrid of, of a floor, of one with a floor and adding number three. And if we do that, then uh, would we want to set number three at 500,000 or would you recommend it be a proportion? Like it would be, a, you know, a third of, you know, as proposed, it's a third. Would, we, would it be a third? Therefore, it would increase above 500,000 if we were over the 2 million. So perhaps I'm proposing that unless there's a reason that you think that that would not be wise to do. Um, I don't have any uh, idea off the top of my head why that wouldn't be a bad idea, but we can definitely, I can check in with the public works staff and make sure that there's not anything on the grant side that would um, contradict that, indicate that. Great, thank you. Mm -hmm. Thank you. I guess I would only add if we're, Looking at combining one and three, which I think is very creative, um, I think having the matching funds be a fixed amount as a starting point would be simpler rather than having kind of flow up and down. And then you can always see in each budget cycle, was it not enough, was it too much? Um, the upside of all this is to create the flexibility of matching. The downside is you don't want to strand too much money you know, versus investing it into the ground, which I know you all care about as well. So uh, I guess that would just be my small variation on the theme of what you said, Councilmember Falcon. So with this, don't do number four. <laughs> <laughs> Noted. <clears throat> so is this something you want, you're going to come back, you're going to play with, and you'll come back to us with it? Yeah, we'll bring back options at the, I think, probably the November uh, CIP um, study session and, and business item in that meeting. Super. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you, Council. All right, so wanted to provide a brief update on uh, our equity process. So as you know, in the 23-28 CIP, um, we included an equity analysis and mapping exercise uh, that came out of the diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging five-year roadmap objectives. Um, that was, uh, what we did was we created an equity index score for each potential capital project and included that in the CIP prioritization um, as kind of a first shot at how do we integrate equity uh, directly into our CIP, uh, and we've uh, we got some great council feedback, and uh, financial planning is working closely with the the DIB manager and IT staff to update that data uh, to the most recent um, census blocks and um, improve this process. So we're following the the citywide uh, equity analysis tool that they're developing now. So um, that's ongoing. Uh, IT staff is also creating another kind of user friendly application. Um, that the public could use to actually view and query some of the U.S. Census and ACS data for Kirkland and areas of Kirkland. Um, so we're hoping that could be um, um, that can be really useful. And I think overall for future CIPs, this will be really helpful to bring forward some of that analysis uh, to council and also to the public, uh, and to um, really you know follow 
um, what is laid out in the DEIB uh, roadmap. Um, but we want to make sure that we build that citywide equity tool first and then um, do use that for the CIP process. Um, so staff will return with more information as part of the larger uh, roadmap update to council on September uh, 19th. All right, so we have a couple updates. Just wanted to go through the city work program uh, and where it's called out some of the, the capital projects and how this update uh, meets those objectives. Uh, so the first is the fire stations, uh, which is completing the construction of fire station 27 and the renovated fire station in 22, and completing the design for renovation of fire station 26 and 21. Um, so this CIP update includes uh, transfers or expected transfers of project balances uh, from the completion of fire stations 27 and 22 uh, to fire station 21 and 26. So both of those are under budget at present. Um, and design is in progress for both fire stations 21 and 26, uh, with both expected to go to bid in fall 23, uh, with construction to begin in early 24. Uh, the second is on Juanita and 100th. Uh, so the city secured a $384,000 grant for water, water quality improvements related to the 100th Ave uh, Northeast, Northeast Roadway Project. Uh, that 100th Avenue project is under construction, uh, and the Juanita Drive project is currently in design and expected to go to bid by end of the year. Uh, and finally, the Transportation Benefit District. Uh, so this is around issuing the bonds and initiating design and construction of the Safer Routes to School and uh, Active Transportation Plan Priority Projects, as well as the Vision Zero Projects. Um, so design contracts are in place for some of those TBD projects uh, and overall delivery is on schedule and on budget. Um, the city's new vehicle license fee will become active and begin on January 1st, 2024. Uh, and I just spoke to Department of Licensing. We will start to receive that uh, revenue at the end of February. Um, we're expecting 1.3 million in revenue uh, and with 1 million of that, that will be budgeted for debt service payments related to the Safer Routes to School uh, projects. Um, so staff is working with financial advisors to plan a bond issuance uh, to be brought back to city council in early 2024, uh, pending the interest rate environment next year. All right, so now we'll go through some of the updates by uh, program for each of the projects. So I won't call out every project on the, on the slide, but please stop me if you have specific questions. I also have Rod here for, uh, to help answer things. Um, so first is the sound transit project. So this includes both the Northeast 85th Street ped bike connection and the Northeast 85th Street East uh, bound third lane. Um, both of those need local funding for in-house costs that are currently unfunded. Uh, so there's 300,000 of ineligible costs for the ped bike connection and 165 ineligible costs for uh, the northeast, uh, the, sorry, the eastbound third lane. Um, so what that means is that for external funding and, and grant funding, um, there are often uh, parts of um, capital project expenses that they won't fund, and we, we call those ineligibles. In this case, um, when uh, project managers are charging their time to specific capital projects, that includes overhead and includes um, other staff on the CIP staff and other overhead uh, charges from, um, from the city. Uh, and in this case, Sound Transit doesn't cover that, so we need to find um, local funding um, to pay for that. So. Uh, we've identified the 2021 Safer Routes to School project has a balance uh, that we can use for these projects. So that includes uh, 349,000 of REIT 2 and 150,000 of uh, street levy um, funding. And the rest of all the Safer Routes to School projects are, have been um, 
included in the uh, Transportation Benefit District project, which I'll go into more detail in the next slide. Um, and the Kirkland Intelligent Transportation System, ITS. Uh, so this is uh, proposing swapping one million of REIT one and two from uh, in 2024 uh, from the Northeast 85th Street and 132nd Ave Northeast dual lane project, TRC 139, um, uh, for uh, 2026 REIT 2 funding. So we're basically escalating funding from TRC 139 for the ITS program uh, and then moving the ITS funding back to 2026. So it's just a swap. There's no net change in funding for either of these projects, but it does mean that the ITS project will have an adequate funding for its cash flow in 24 through 26. Uh, so this basically means that both projects can continue going forward uh, because the uh, Northeast 85th project has uh, current funding in it. Uh, next is the 108th Ave Northeast Transit Q Jump. Um, I think most of this was covered in the May 23rd, um, sorry, the May uh, 18th, 2023 um, council memo um, presentation, but the city did not receive a $1.5 million PSRC right-of-way grant that was programmed into the CIP as unsecured external in 24, so we're moving that back to 25. Um, and staff will continue to work with King County and seek additional funding opportunities uh, to pay for that acquisition and construction phases. Um, and we'll return to council in 24 with uh, potential options for financing uh, as part of the, the 25-2030 CIP development. Uh, 124th Ave Northeast, uh, we, construction bid is happening in early fall. Currently we're estimating $2 million over budget. Uh, so we program that into the CIP for now uh, and we'll reevaluate at award bid if that needs more funding. Uh, and then finally, the developer-funded projects are tax increment finance projects related to the station area project uh, plan, sorry. Um, currently, we recommend no changes at this time. Um, we're gonna have to reevaluate that given development conditions as part of the 25-2030 CIP. Uh, and a couple of new projects for transportation. Uh, one is the 120th Ave Northeast Roadway Rehab. Uh, that's adding uh, funding for a new street preservation scope that bubbled up during this process uh, that'll happen in 24 and 25. Uh, it's a priority street preservation project near Evergreen Hospital, uh, and it's funded with $1.7 million of funding from existing balances from those annual street preservation projects. So that's just savings from previous years that we're being able to, to roll out into a new scope. Uh, and the Transportation Benefit District Implementation, so NMC 3000 or 30,000, uh, this is just combining the existing balances uh, and 23 through 28 funding from the various sources, including Safe Routes to School, Annual Sidewalk Maintenance, and the TBD Debt Funding, uh, which totals about $21.25 million, and that includes about a 10% contingency. Um, so just one note on that, those uh, ongoing streams of revenue, the Safer Routes to School, the annual sidewalk maintenance, um, those will return to their, their typical scope uh, upon completion of the TBD project. So that is not a permanent, it's just that's how we're showing it in the 23-28 CIP to make it simpler. Uh, and then finally, the Northeast 112th Street and 80th Ave Northeast, which is the Juanita Drive newly separated scope as authorized by council in May, uh, that's funded with 1.9 million of, of uh, transportation impact fees in 2025. All right, and now I'll pass it off to Rod Seitz, our capital projects manager, to go through some updates on uh, some unfunded projects. Thank you, Kevin. Uh, good evening, city manager, and Welcome Mayor. Back. Good to see everyone uh, in person this time for me. 
Um, yeah, like Kevin was saying, you know, we have a lot of work going on, but in addition to the projects, we have other things that we're advancing on fronts as well. Uh, we got a few slides for that. One of them is the Holmes Point Drive at OO Denny Crossway. Uh, on the screen, um, in the upper right-hand corner, this picture's a little small, but what we're planning to do is put in some speed humps to slow vehicles down and then put in a crosswalk so that pedestrians can cross more safely at that intersection going from the parking lot to the, to the park. And to do that, our plan is to uh, use the 2023 preservation program to put in the speed humps and then the 2024 preservation program to put in the crosswalk. And the reason we're doing the 2024 program uh, in the bottom picture, you'll see the street condition is really rough at this time and it actually needs a little bit of rehabilitation, taking it down, uh, rebuilding the road, and then we'll put the crosswalk in um, on top of that. So this is consistent with the um, Holmes Point Drive study that was conducted. So the improvements are gonna be consistent with that. Uh, we'll also add signage and set ourselves up for all the future improvements for uh, Holmes Point Drive. <clears throat> Another one we wanted to kind of cover with you, give you an update on, is the 124th Avenue improvements between 85th and 116th Streets. Um, in this case, uh, we have been working with the developers uh, to find opportunities where development can re happen along the corridor, uh, completing gaps. What we're looking at on the picture, um, the corridor so long between those two streets is a actually segmented um, image. Uh, the uh, readers are covering up the match line on the bottom one, but if you could envision both of those pictures fit, fitting on top of each other. Um, so the blue is representing on this um, screen sidewalks that are already in place. Uh, those are available. Uh, they meet all ADA standards and allows people to move uh, north and south throughout the corridor. Uh, the red ones are actually the missing gaps where there's ditches and steep slopes and other things in the way uh, that we want to address. Um, in addition to that, uh, we had recently completed our first greenway project. That's the greenish color or towards the north at 112th Street, the line representing where that pathway is coming in at the very end, tail end of that project. Uh, we also thought it was important to point out where the Boys and Girls Club is. Between the Greenway and the Boys and Girls Clubs, there's a number of bus stops that would benefit from having connections on both the east and west side. And so when we looked at this corridor, uh, we actually went out, did a site visit, took some photographs, and began understanding where the right-of-way limits are, where these conditions for improvement are. Uh, and what we want to do is actually um, put together a more comprehensive approach on what our strategies might be, bring some options back to council at October 3rd, um, and, and take the next step after that. It's 124th. <clears throat> In addition to the transportation improvements, we've also made some significant advancements on the water and sewer plan. Uh, what we're looking at on the screen here um, to really shortcut it is the west of market sewer is very old. It's in a, uh, requires high maintenance. It needs a lot of repairs uh, regularly. And our modeling in the next projections for the future build out uh, shown on the screen down Market Street 
um, the thicker red lines are showing where the system will fail if we don't do anything west of market. So in the CIP, we actually have a couple of projects identified west of market. One is a $10 million phase one project, and there's a phase two project that in the previous CIP was identified at $8 million, but it actually had contemplated um, upwards of $28 million to do all the work that's needed west of market. West of market is in uh, dire shape. However, what we did in the CIP was we identified $500,000 to do a study and strategy. What can we do west of market? And the results, I think the punchline is down at the bottom. All of that $38 million worth of work in our current projections in 2023 dollars can be done in just under $9 million. So it's significant. Um, and we, do, we owe a lot of work to the staff and the public works crews and working with our planning team to make sure that we can identify where these improvements make sense and what we can do. Uh, the technique we wanna use on this is a non-destructive really kind of technique that we think, so it's a trenchless technology called cured in place piping. Um, and we have requirements that meet uh, environmental codes for cured in place pipe. Uh, the techniques and methods we use meet all the state standards and regulations. Uh, so this technique is a viable option and uh, this is the one we'd like to move forward with. Councilmember Curtis. Thank you, Rod. Is this the first time that we'll be using this technique? Uh, no, we've used uh, trenchless technology and cured in place before. Actually on Market Street, we did that as well. And we also did pipe bursting um, near Kirkland Urban. We have cured in place pipe that's in place. So we've done it, um, there's various colors so you can maintain and TV the, the lines a little bit better. Um, there's how you cure the pipe. We have those kind of things so we don't emit odors, uh, those kind of things. So they're compliant with all the ecology requirements and state requirements for this. Uh, I, I will point out it's not in every case. It works west of market because of the slopes and because the existing pipe is a concrete pipe which gives it its structural integrity. It's just has some leaking that's going on uh, or potential for leaking inwards, not outwards, I should say, leaking inwards. Um, and so this cured in place pipe um, allows us to maintain a high, high flow volume and still retain the existing structural integrity of the pipe. Would this technology be one that could be considered for side sewers? Um, it could where the benefit of this it could uh, but where the benefit of this really shines is on larger size pipes that are really long uh, side sewers are relatively shorter um, and you would have to have the slope requirements and make sure that the pipe has the strength and things like that I mean you could always look at that for sure okay thank you Councilmember Falcone thank you Madam Mayor well thank you for this update um, can you speak to the um, the expected lifespan of this fix versus the 30 whatever million dollar fix like how long would each last yeah they're about the same okay. um and w we look at it as a 30-year span um but you know it, it could go 50 years um depending on maintenance and how things are and of course as redevelopment occurs you'd make sure that you tie it in correctly okay. thank you yeah uh the last one that i i think it's the last one um, that I have here. Uh, South Reservoir, it's another project that we've been working on. So the South Reservoir provides uh, pressure and water supply 
um, to not only the city of Kirkland, but we also partner with Redmond and Bellevue on this water supply system. And uh, this is one that originally um, was a seismic retrofit that we had planned in the CIP years ago. And as we've got into it, the type of steel for that seismic retrofit just isn't the right type of steel. So we're contemplating the rebuild of the whole South Reservoir. And that's why we see significant cost increases. And along with those cost increases, we're pairing this with our water system modeling that's going on right now. And that's giving us the volumes that we need. So we see the numbers going up as we keep pace with growth and with fire flow requirements and those kind of things. And um, we'll bring back more information on South Reservoir as we know more. Where is the South Reservoir? It's um, just north of Bridal Trails Park. Um, so and it's south of Tech City Bowl, I guess, somewhere right in that area. Um, Kevin, thank you. Thanks, Rod. Uh, so I'll try and go through the next few uh, pretty quickly, but please, again, stop me if you have any specific questions. Uh, for surface water, we have a number of changes, uh, mainly related to just really, uh, receiving uh, additional grant funding, ecology, as well as the King County uh, Flood control, control District. Um, one I'll call out is the Goat Hill Drainage Ditch Conveyance and Channel Stabilization Project. Um, that we've added $500,000 of unsecured external to the CIP. That's We put out a grant application request for that funding. Um, we should have a decision um, by October, November. So hopefully when we come back to council, we'll have uh, more information on that. Um, and on the unfunded side, as I mentioned earlier, uh, following the conclusion of the surface water master plan, uh, we have updated the, the unfunded list to sort by priority ranking and updated those cost estimates to match the 2022 survey uh, study, sorry. Uh, and we did remove six projects that were uh, either on private property or already uh, determined to be complete via the, the operating program. On parks, so you'll notice that there's not a ton of changes on parks. Uh, depending on the outcome of the ballot measure, uh, we'll update this uh, before the end of the year um, with uh, those projects if it, if it passes. Uh, there is one new project, that's Snyder's Corner Park Master Plan and Development, uh, and that's receiving 128000 of park impact fees above budget and moving that from the unfunded to the funded program. Um, we're adding 250000 of parks impact fees uh, for the Everest Playground and ADA path renovation, uh, as well as uh, 93000 uh, of parks impact fees uh, to the OO Denny Park Improvements Picnic Shelter. Um, in IT, this is just reflecting a couple of uh, scope increases, uh, mainly from existing uh, fund or project balances, uh, network refresh, and um, we're adding a spare server to the AV equipment in the KJC courtrooms funded by a project closeout balance. Um, we're also recommending that um, we remove both of the unfunded projects in IT, which are both related to parking technology, uh, as the work to solve those issues with parking technology is, is being done by public work. So that's no longer needed on the, the IT side. Facilities. So the facilities conditions assessment is uh, a contract that was funded by a 2324 uh, service package, and that is basically evaluating all of our city properties and buildings, checking the current status and renovation needs, and then creating a new maintenance schedule, especially over the next six years. 
Um, so we're currently working with the contract to determine how to best build out basically an improved uh, facility sinking fund model. How are we gonna charge uh, internally for each of those buildings and how are we gonna plan the CIP going forward? So not a lot of changes yet, but you will see a lot, a lot of changes uh, probably in the 25, 2030 uh, facility CIP and the internal service charges um, that comes out of that study. Um, also, you won't see the, the Fisk property um, acquisition on that, um, but we bring that back in November and as part of the CIP. Uh, the, the modified projects are really just a couple of funding changes. Uh, the Houghton Village capital improvements uh, was amended by a fiscal note in May. Um, some funding that was included in the June budget adjustments uh, from the facility sinking fund to fund the pilot for um, space densification in City Hall, uh, as well as about 31,000 were added for design costs for the first three departments of implementation uh, and still working out exactly uh, what will be done on that. And next steps. Uh, so tonight is, uh, we're receiving some discussion, especially on the re reserve policy in your direction, which we'll take under advisement and then come back on November 8th uh, with a revised CIP update. Um, any updates related to grant decisions and things like that, um, any award bid information. Uh, and then in December, on December 12th, it'll be final adoption of uh, the 23-28 CIP update along with the 23-24 the mid-buy um, budget adjustments. So um, any questions or comments or anything else? Councilmember Pascal. Thanks, Madam Mayor. First off, great update. Obviously, lots, are going, lots is going on today with capital construction. You know, there used to be a time where I used to get complaints about we weren't doing enough, and now I'm getting complaints that we're doing too much at one time <clears throat> because of all the construction around the city. Um, but that being said, I just wanted to raise a couple of things ar around the Cross Kirkland Corridor that, that were on my mind. One was the PSE uh, project that's installing the transmission line where it looks like the Cross Kirkland Corridor might be closed for a period of time um, along the stretch that was just closed for seem like more than a year. Um, so that's a concern uh, of, so I'd like to kind of hear a little bit more about how we could avoid closures along there, if at all possible. The second one is while I was out on the Cross Kirkland Corridor, I come across a lot more people that are coming from out of town that are using it, you know, bicyclists and so forth. And there's a couple groups I was walking up from Totem Lake, the backside, and they're asking where I was coming from. And I was like, well, Totem Lake Village, Totem Lake Park, and they, they were like, oh, that's cool, I should, yeah, I should, I didn't know I could use that, uh, to, that route to get there. And then I started looking around, and we actually have no wayfinding or any signage that says that you, could, you can use that to access Totem Lake Village. So I'm just curious about wayfinding along the Cross Kirkland Corridor, and if we could consider some improvements in the capital budget uh, for that, and I think that would be important. And then, uh, and then I guess I just wanted to ask a question about the 132nd Slater Avenue crossing of the East Rail Cross Kirkland Corridor and, you know, how's, what's the status of that and is that, is that moving forward as planned or with a next, next year kind of construction? Is that? Yeah, we're moving forward as planned on that and we're coordinating with uh, PSC on their high voltage line. It goes right through there as well. Uh, we're also working with North Shore Utility, who has some planned improvements there. So, yeah, we'll put the uh, Hawk improvement in 
uh, next year, and then you know as we advance our designs and as the corridor use goes up, we'll see what the possibilities are in the future. So, okay, thank you. Thank you. That's exciting news, Rod. That hot crossing is going to be a game changer. Kevin. All right. That's all I have. Um, Barring any other comments, thank you so much. And thanks to the Public Works team, uh, Jessica Clem and, and Rod and, and George. Uh, back to you, Madam Mayor. Thank you very much. Okay, that takes us to our next agenda item, City Manager. Okay, thank you, Madam Mayor. The uh, next item is a briefing on the future park lane study findings. Um, we have several people who are going to present, including some consultants, but here to kick it off is our Deputy City Manager, James Lopez, who's going to lead you through it all. Thank you, City Manager. Good evening, Mayor, Deputy Mayor, and Council. It's my pleasure to be here tonight. I'll talk a little bit while we load up the deck. Oh, okay, we'll do that here. Hi, Ellie. Welcome. Uh, Hi. So, Madam Mayor, uh, it's really my pleasure to present tonight the, founding, the findings from the Park Lane Study Report. Um, I would like to point out I am joined by uh, Julie Underwood and Victoria Kovacs, Diana Hart, and we have Ellie Schaefer and Nathan Polanski on the line. They have been an amazing team and really have done the lion's share of the work, so kudos to you for that. As we outlined in some detail in our memorandum, the purpose of the consultant study was to identify and evaluate the practical implementation challenges and opportunities of the three options for permanent or temporary closure of park lane to vehicular traffic. Now, the study identified infrastructure, programming, parking mitigations, and other in investments that would be necessary to potentially close park lane to vehicle traffic and successfully activate a pedestrian retail, service, and dining area in the downtown core. The operational scenarios evaluated to the possible park lane vehicle closure, they included three scenarios. One was a full-time year-round closure to traffic. Two was a full-time summer seasonal, cl seasonal closure to traffic, such as from May to October. And three, summer evening closure to traffic, such as from May to October, for example, from the hours like 6 to 11 or 12. Evenings, that was the evenings option. Now, while the study was focused on the opportunities and costs of closures, the council always has the option to maintain Park Lane as a flexible street with vehicle access and parking. Now, there is a great deal of information in the report to support a decision by the council anytime. There is a, there's a robust report and Ellie is going to go through that now. However, staff is recommending that the council wait to receive information from a comprehensive parking study being conducted in the downtown area due at the end of the year, I think by about January, before making a final decision about options. Of course, there is plenty of information out, but we do want you to know that that information is coming. And with that, Ellie, I'll turn it over to you to talk about the substance of the report. And Council, then we will return for questions during the study. Thank you. Welcome, Ellie. Thank you. Good evening, everyone. Thanks, Jim. Um, Mayor, Council members, we appreciate your time tonight. Um, 
We're looking forward to providing you a quick recap of those three scenarios that Jim mentioned for Park Lane. Um, and then we're gonna spend some more time today on the evaluation of those scenarios um, than we did during the town hall, which I believe most of you were present for. Um, I'm gonna try and get through our slides pretty efficiently this evening so we can really maximize your time for questions, answers, discussion uh, at the end of our presentation. So the future of Park Lane, um, we started this effort with guiding principles. So we really wanted these to um, both shape and evaluate the scenarios for the street. Um, these principles came from a few different places, um, including previous studies and adopted plans, as well as review of the Transportation and Planning Commissions. Um, I'll just read through these briefly so they're fresh in our minds. The first guiding principle is to enhance Park Lane's function and reputation as a vibrant local and regional destination and gathering place, expand economic vitality and support commercial activity, ensure safe and equitable access for all, maintain year-round streetscape at a high level of service and ensure fiscal sustainability, and then incorporate Park Lane as part of a larger non-motorized connection between the lakefront, Kirkland Urban, and the Northeast 85th Street station area. So I'll come back to these um, in a few slides when we get to our evaluation. Um, the existing conditions, we have more detail on what's out there today in the report. Um, briefly, just a reminder, we're only looking at the west block of Park Lane between Lake and Maine for the study. Um, really, it's a really nice street today. Um, it has a lot of amenities and high-end finishes. It's a curbless environment. Um, as part of this process, we're trying to figure out how to really leverage that flexible design and make the street the best iteration of itself. Um, the baseline improvements, so we've pulled out elements that are common to all three scenarios. There's detail about these at the beginning of the report. Generally, they fall into a few categories, things like infrastructure, um, staffing and operations, beautification, access, those sorts of things. Um, Based on a request from council, we've also added a cost um, for the base, these baseline improvements. Um, you can find that in your packet. The street closure scenarios themselves. So I'll just provide a few highlights of each. Um, we've got three different scenarios, summer evenings, summer season, and year round. What, one thing I wanna mention is that we do say May to October for the summer evenings and summer season scenarios. Um, we've left this flexible in the report, but um, in your packet, we have included some more considerations as to when exactly um, you would close the street and when exactly you might open it, um, you know, when in May, when in October, because we realize that's a between four and six month period. Um, so those are in your packet, but that looks at things like weather, um, setup and breakdown requirements, launch and um, conclusion celebrations, and other lessons learned. Um, generally, we don't think the exact date in May or October has a big impact on um, the scenarios or the evaluation. So looking at our first scenario, summer evenings, um, this one is envisioned to be car-free from approximately 4 to 11 p.m., um, again, May to October. Opportunities for the summer evening scenario um, include that it's it's really meant to be an evolution of the Evenings on Park Lane program that was developed in summer 21 and 22. So coming off of that, um, the extended hours are an opportunity starting at 4 p.m. instead of 6 p.m. 
would allow some more time to capture folks after work, after school, kind of have the street closed in time for the dinner and, and happy hour crowds. Um, the furnishings and amenities would need to be flexible and movable. Um, this scenario balances daily commerce needs with an evening activation and a vibrant atmosphere. Um, there's a lot of branding opportunities, like you can see in this graphic example on the planters, monument signage, um, and also in communications regarding the street closure. And then really the programming could be focused on actually really activating those, those evening times. Challenge of this, challenges of this scenario, um, the fact that it is temporary does mean that everything needs to be set up and broken down daily. Um, so it limits um, the furnishing op options a bit that need to be lightweight, movable, or foldable. Communications are really important um, given the changing conditions, the street opening and closing you know, every day in the summer. It's really important to communicate with businesses, customers, and visitors. Parking management needs to be done every day in this scenario, and that includes staffing that extends outside of typical working hours. The storage needs are pretty significant, so putting things away um, conveniently every night. And then with parking, um, currently there is one ADA accessible parking space on this block, and there are five short-term spaces. So in this scenario, we recommend moving that one ADA space um, to a nearby location um, and moving one of the five short-term spaces nearby, given the limited duration of this closure. The second scenario, we're calling summer season. So this is car free 24 seven between May and October. Opportunities in this scenario um, include that um, it's more predictable. So having that longer closure period and not having it changing every day um, does provide that predictability. There's opportunities to really bring more shoppers and diners to the street all, all times of day. Um, it capitalizes on those busy summer months. And then the semi-permanent furnishings can mean potentially higher quality installations, art, landscaping, et cetera. And then there's an opportunity to really rotate the program throughout the summer, um, rotate the programming and provide different unique experiences, different months of the summer. Challenges of this scenario, um, you know, it really would be important to activate the street during weekdays in particular. Um, this closure is a longer duration in terms of that 24 hours a day factor. So that means um, more staffing needs. Um, in this scenario, it also becomes increasingly important to kind of monitor the activity on the street, um, how the parking is working, what public input is being received. And it's important to um, be flexible and, and change things um, if needed based on what's being observed. Uh, deliveries would occur from the ally, alleys and nearby loading zones. Um, this one, we can't have cars driving down the middle of the street. Emergency access is from either end of the block, um, and de deliveries would be the same. Also, things would be left out overnight, um, so there's additional security needs that come into play once we get into that 24-hour-a-day closure. Um, parking is also more impacted in this scenario than the previous one. So we recommend, again, moving that ADA space um, nearby and then moving three of the five short-term spaces nearby as well during the closure period. 
The last scenario, year round. So this is car free 24 seven all year. Um, so this is a permanent pedestrianization of the street. So really the idea is to create a vibrant programmable space. That's really like a hallmark for downtown Kirkland um, surrounded by, by thriving businesses. So this has a, a mix of permanent and, out, and modular furnishings. So um, having that consistent, predictable destination, but also allowing for flexibility over time. Um, we've also included expanded public art, um, focus on year-round activation strategies, particularly in the winter, um, and then seasonally expanded landscaping. Challenges of this scenario, again, really making sure that the street is activated and programmed um, in those non-busy uh, months and times. Um, more staffing and monitoring needs from a full closure with a longer duration. And again, the year round scenario is a bit less flexible than the summer season scenario. Um, also, there's a need for um, more security in those off peak times and seasons. Um, the travel lane itself that exists today needs to be kept clear for emergency access. Um, and automated gates are required at either end for that emergency access. Again, deliveries could happen near from nearby, but in this case, they could probably happen on the street for a certain time before a certain hour in the mornings. Um, this one is the greatest level of public investment, uh, most expensive. And then for this scenario, parking is obviously the, the most impacted, um, those 17 spaces that exist on the street. So um, we proposed moving that ADA space again nearby and moving all five of those five short-term spaces nearby. So looking at evaluation, um, we've evaluated these three scenarios from two angles using um, both those guiding principles I mentioned before, as well as um, cost. So I'll talk about the guiding principles and I'll hand it off to my colleague Nathan to talk more about cost. Um, really, we're just using this evaluation to help you all on, on council start the conversation and decide what you want to do for, for the future of Park Lane. Um, so we're using these guiding principles to evaluate all three scenarios and the existing conditions. Uh, it's really a qualitative assessment and each of our five guiding principles has several goals within it that we're actually using to measure. Um, I'll go through those in, in a little bit of detail. Um, we've considered the guiding principles equally in our evaluation. Ultimately, um, city council might decide to prioritize one of the five over another or certain goals over another. Um, but for now, we've, we've rated them all equally. Just a reminder of the five guiding principles. Um, we'll be referring to these in short names in my next few slides. So the first one is about destination and a gathering place. Second one's about economic vitality. Third is about safety and access. Fourth principle is about maintenance and fiscal sustainability. And then the fifth principle is about a non-motorized connection. So again, we've been a, as objective as possible with the information that we have based on these scenarios. There's all scored relatively to each other and um, everything is weighted evenly. Um, but again, you might choose to prioritize um, one principle over another. So these slides, they have four different color bar charts. They're labeled, the gray bars are labeled with an E. Uh, those are the existing condition. Purple bars have a one, those are summer evenings. Um, the green bars are summer season, labeled with a two. 
And then the blue, bar, blue bars labeled with a three are the year round scenario. So um, generally by scenario to start, and I'll, then we can take a closer look at each of these five. Um, the existing condition generally scores the lowest against our guiding principles. Um, besides in the fourth principle, which is just given the fact that um, there's reduced resource needs um, and easy vehicle access if the street isn't closed. The evening um, evening scenario generally doesn't score as well as the others. Um, again, it scores a bit better on that same guiding principle for maintenance and fiscal sustainability um, for the same reasons as the existing condition, just requiring less investment, um, less maintenance. Um, the summer season scenario performs well um, with a longer closure time, um, but still maintains flexibility. And then the year-round scenario um, has a lot of opportunities with you know, the full closure. It does the most to prioritize pedestrians. Um, it's also going to be the most resource intensive. So just a bit of a closer look, and I wanna share a little bit about what we heard in our town hall as well. Um, so for our first guiding principle about making Park Lane a destination and gathering place, the goals within that we're actually measuring are, are looking at special event infrastructure, um, variety of programming opportunities, inclusivity, um, an attractive streetscape, opportunities for public art, and flexibility over time. So looking at how the four scenarios scored here, um, the summer season and year-round scenario have more opportunities for you know beautification art programming and events um, but again that summer season closure scenario is going to be a bit more flexible so it scores um, slightly higher there's a lot more detail on how all the scores came together in the report as well and i'm happy to answer any more questions that come up um, from the town hall we heard some questions about really how does this one block potential closure um, contribute to that larger pedestrian connection that's envisioned between the lakefront and, and Kirkland Urban. Um, really, like this would be one piece of the puzzle. We recognize that there are other sections of that connection that might require a different solution to better contribute to a, a big pedestrian connection like that. Um, and that this is this is really one one unique part of that. The second guiding principle is about economic vitality. So here we're looking at storefront visibility for spontaneous shopping and dining, um, convenient business access, space for businesses to expand into the public right-of-way, space for temporary vendors, and programming designed to support commercial activity. So um, visibility from cars um, and business vehicle access is going to be better in the existing uh, conditions and the evening scenario, just given the reduced or no closure. Um, but the summer and year round do have um, greater uh, or longer space and time for businesses to expand into the right of way um, to accommodate vendors and more opportunities for programming that can be designed to support those adjacent businesses. Um, this is a big one we're hearing about from, from the community and from the business owners. Um, in the town hall, there were some business owners saying that they would not be participating in any programming were the street to close. Um, there was also some questions about how, um, how a street closure or an associated programming um, can support economic vitality. 
So um, in response to that, we've provided um, a lot of sources to the city with different literature and research um, about the impacts of pedestrian infrastructure, walkable places, um, and street closures and programming in particular on, on the adjacent businesses and the, the larger city economy. Um, the other thing I'll point out here is that um, deliveries are an important consideration for the businesses in any scenario, and we've included um, recommendations for that. The third guiding principle is safety and access. So looking at ADA accessibility, pedestrian safety, security, transit access, um, bicycle parking, vehicle parking, and vehicle circulation. Um, here, all scenarios and the existing conditions score pretty similarly. Um, Year-round and existing, again, are, are gonna be the most predictable without change happening daily or seasonally. Um, the parking impact is varied across scenarios, but that ends up being offset in our evaluation by um, increased pedestrian safety and increased bike parking. So that's where you see those kind of level out. Um, we're definitely hearing from business owners that parking is a concern, um, parking loss in particular. Um, generally, we're hearing a bit less concern from members of the community regarding parking. Fourth of five, um, maintenance and fiscal sustainability. So here we're looking at um, stormwater system, uh, resources for consistent maintenance, um, staffing for infrastructure needs and the closure, actually closing the street itself, um, and then access for city maintenance, waste management, and emergency services. So there's generally going to be a lower cost and more vehicle access for um, either the shortest closure period or no closure at all, as I, I mentioned before. Concerns for this one from the community are mostly about um, the city making that needed investment to, to really maintain and upkeep the street at a, a high level over time. Lastly, a non-motorized connection, fifth guiding principle. Um, here we're looking at prioritizing pedestrians, um, expanded space for walking, infrastructure for walking, and opportunities for visual connections like signage and wayfinding. Um, so the year-round closure shown on the right, um, you know, is really going to maximize um, pedestrianization of the street and maximize that non-motorized connection. So that one scores the highest for this principle. Um, the town hall, we heard that the public is interested in having um, more space for walking, better ADA accessibility, and um, also interested in the environmental impacts of prioritizing walking over driving. That said, we're being realistic about um, the, the real impact that one, closing one block will have on um, mode choice <laughs> overall, um, but certainly um, having one block closed is gonna make downtown a, a one more step closer to being you know, really, really walkable. So. With that, I'll hand it off to Nathan to talk about cost. Thanks, Sally. So uh, in addition to evaluating against the project goals and principles, we also prepared a planning level cost evalu evaluation um, to identify the range in capital and operational investment that might be needed to implement, implement each of the street closure scenarios. So capital costs are based on sort of the itemization and kind of a, a cost or an allowance 
for each of the physical elements that would be included in each of the streets closure scenarios. Um, these include allowances for soft costs. And so that's city staff time or consultant time to do future design, permitting and management of projects. Um, it also includes contingencies and tax. Um, these um, soft costs were coordinated with city staff to match um, other kind of planning level projects and kind of budgeting that are done. Um, in addition to capital costs, there's operational costs. And so the range in operational costs includes staff time for management and coordination of the programming activities and operations. Um, and also includes time for installation and management time. Again, this effort's been coordinated across departments to kind of give feedback from each of the departments who would be participating in operational elements. Um, the range in operational costs does not include existing proactive and reactive maintenance. The city is currently budgeted to maintain and operate existing park lane streetscape. And so, you know, working with staff, um, they have identified approximately 740 annual hours across the different public works divisions. So that's streets and grounds, transportation, surface water. And so that's in addition to those hours. And so um, next slide. So that's kind of high level what we looked at. Um, Ellie mentioned that there are several elements and kind of infrastructural needs that are, are consistent across, across, across each of the street closure scenarios. And so as part of our cost evaluation, we identified the costs for those. Um, so you know, if the city were to decide not to move forward with the street closure and just kind of wanted to provide some enhancements to the existing streetscape and infrastructure um, that identifies the elements that have been identified are potentially, you know, six hundred to eight hundred thousand um, dollars of capital cost improvements, and that includes, you know, reducing kind of bollards on the street, um, additional trash receptacles and pickup, um, updates and enhancements to the electrical distribution to um, make events easier to have, expanded lighting, um, so a variety of things. And again, those are consistent across all of the scenarios. Next slide. So here is a, a kind of quick snapshot of the kind of capital costs for each of the um, scenarios. And so capital costs include the street closure and utility infrastructure improvements, um, kind of opportunities for gateways, signage, lighting enhancements, parking modifications, and streetscape amenities and storage. And so from a capital cost investment, looking at, you know, one and a half to $2 million for summer evenings, $2 million to two and a half for the summer season and two and a half to three and a half for the kind of year round closure. I'm rounding those to keep it a little bit simple. Um, in addition to sort of the um, initial capital costs, we also took a, took a look at what are the ad additional reoccurring capital costs that might be needed uh, for miscellaneous items, um, you know, whether it's replanting, planting areas, replacing umbrellas or seating kind of public art displays. And so we've also identified, you know, potentially twenty-five dollars to $75,000 per year for summer evenings, 50 to 150 k for the summer seasonal, and seventy-five dollars to $225,000 for the year round. On the operations and costs, um, again, here we're looking at two different buckets, sort of a coordination and management um, of those kind of private patios and displays, kind of public art opportunities, vendors, coordinating for events, so a lot of city staff time, um, 
to manage that programming for kind of weekly or quarterly events, special events by the city. Um, we also looked at installation maintenance time, so recurring maintenance for setup and breakdown, as Ellie mentioned, that would happen at the kind of start or the end, um, or whether it be daily, if it's the summer evenings closure, cleanup, um, enhanced kind of maintenance and beautification services to elevate the existing streetscape, um, and then inst installation and removal of kind of infrastructure and streetscape elements over time. And so here, kind of combining those coordination and management and installation and maintenance, looking at you know one and a half to two um, full-time equivalent um, staff to manage that for summer evenings, um, two to two and a half staff for summer seasonal and, and three to four staff kind of full-time equivalents um, for a year-round closure. So a lot of investment to really um, operate and manage with a kind of higher level of service that's been done for the past. Um, and as, as I mentioned, you know, the, the capital costs as well as the operational costs are something that we've kind of coordinated across departments to understand, to make sure that the assumptions um, are consistent with um, staff who would be executing those. So that's kind of a, the recap that we have for the cost evaluation and we'll turn it back to Jim at this point. there. Thank you very much, um, Ellie and Nathan. Madam Mayor, we're actually right on time. Um, I do have, uh, we have 15 minutes now for the council to ask questions of the consultants. We don't have Martha Chaudhry tonight. Uh, she's not with the city, but she did a, a ton of work on this as well. I want to recognize that, but we do have Diana and Victoria here and the consultants to answer questions. Questions? Councilmember Nixon. Uh, thank you, Madam Mayor. Um, I'm, I'm a little disappointed at the uh, lack of development of the idea of the existing uh, option. Um, in particular, um, we, we know that Park Lane has not fulfilled its potential as a festival street. There's you know, a lack of special events could have been scheduled or have not been scheduled. Um, and partly that's because we've heard repeatedly that the facility is inadequate. Things like lack of power connections, lack of potable water for food vendors, th those sorts of things. And I really would have hoped that this report would have given the council information on what it would take to really make Park Lane a functional festival street for special events not every night for the summer, but just a Friday or maybe Friday and Saturday or something like that, um, which was its original intent. Um, is there any plan to develop that information so that we would be fully informed and be able to make a, a, a good choice? Well, I, I'd like to turn it back to Ellie. Maybe you could talk about the baseline assumptions because there was about six to $800,000 in investments in the street that was consistent against all scenarios. So I think, Councilmember Nixon, that would be applicable. But I do think it was slightly beyond the scope of the consultant work to do a deeper dive into Festival Street activization. But we could do that as a work program. I don't know, Elliot or Nathan, if you wanted to jump in on that. Yeah, so this is the exact slide. Thank, thanks, Jim. Um, so yeah, the, the baseline improvements that have been identified as being um, you know, shared or kind of needed for each of the scenarios also applies to the existing streetscape. So this 
includes exactly what you were just talking about. You know, what are the needs for electrical event power? We spent a lot of time coordinating with, coordinating with city staff. What is needed is a separate meter so that they can uh, monitor that use and um, bill separately for that. What are the additional lighting needs? What are the, um, looking at the picture that is here, you know, what are the impacts that are needed to the kind of stormwater um, planters there to kind of make that more safe and comfortable? Um, some of the other kind of lighting enhancements, um, baller removal, I, I think there's probably a lot of folks that are familiar with some of the, the damages and the kind of constraints and existing conditions associated with the baller, ballers. And you can kind of see the, the number of those. And so the city has, at Main Street started to remove those in locations where they've been having impacts with vehicles. And so the, the baseline cost improvements capture those sort of existing infrastructure needs to really elevate and kind of bring Parkland up to sort of that special event um, baseline. Sure, and I think perhaps Councilman Nixon, because of the ephemeral nature of the content provided for the evenings option, we could probably extrapolate from that based on a short-term festival, one or two-day festival as well, I think. That, that would be great, because uh, I, for one, would like to see that be an assumption that if mm -hmm. we chose the existing option, that that work would be done. Thank you. Councilmember Curtis. Thank you, Madam Mayor. Thank you, Jim. Thank you, Diana, Victoria, Ellie, Nathan, everyone that's worked on this project. Um, it, this has been a really good, worthwhile study I get very excited when I see those visuals and the things that we can do to activate the space. And I truly believe in creating spaces in this community where we put people first. Where we have pedestrian plazas, walking streets, bike lanes, parks, open spaces, spaces that benefit everyone. Um, I really needed and I really appreciate the case study analysis at the end mm -hmm. when you outlined what other cities have done and what the cost in both uh, infrastructure, resources, and staffing. And I think that was super helpful. What was really clear for me from those case studies is that to do this well, it requires significant staffing, mm -hmm. money, and support. Support from the communities, support from the business community, support from organizations such as the chambers and downtown associations. We received an email today with an example from Monterey that said um, to do it well, it was $12 million over three years, and the biggest champion was the Business Association to move this forward. So as we've gone through this, and this is why this study was so important, the cost is sobering. Going from a million and a half to three and a half million dollars, two FTE to four FTEs, plus annual costs of 25,000 to 250,000 is significant. And that's not even talking about uh, the extra waste management and so forth. Having just gone through the CIP presentation, I have to go back to where can we spend that $3 million to $4 million in a better place? We have so many programs. We have our active transportation plan. Mm. The stores to shores green line or greenway will be a million point three investment. The three and a half million dollars we would take for this project, we could do two additional greenways. Um, projects outlined in the pros plan, safer route to schools plan, human service funding and an additional homeless coordinator, the, KC, the CKC master plan, the future transportation plan, and my passion affordable housing. 
So I believe that doing the study was the right thing to do, and we needed to understand what would take to make this successful. I feel like that we have that information now. I feel like we don't need to wait for the parking study. Um, I feel like we don't have the resources, time, staff, and money to do this well, and I think we should end the discussion on closing Park Lane. That is really, no, please no. don't, please don't. No. This has been a very difficult conversation. It's divided our community. I want to close Park Lane. I think it would be a fabulous project, but I, economically, it's not the right thing to do, and it's not the right time to do it. What I would like to do, and I truly believe that creating a city that's livable, walkable, sustainable, and accessible is a priority, and it's my personal priority. What we need to do is take a step back, look at our comp plan, our transportation plan, and that's where we have this conversation. We let, look at it holistically from Marina Park, Park Lane, Downtown Core, Peter Kirk, Kirkland Urban, and the station area plan, and we look at our big picture vision. The feasibility study, the parking study, the curb management studies have all been useful tools. This has been a valuable investment in thinking about this and looking at our larger vision. I am gonna hope with my council's support, I'm gonna make a motion during our business meeting that we uh, move no further on this study and we no longer consider closing Park Lane. Thank you. Uh, Councilmember Black. Well, thank you, Madam Mayor. Um, and thank you, Councilmember Curtis. Um, I really appreciate your remarks. Um, uh, like Councilmember Curtis, I want to thank everyone who worked hard on this, including, I don't think, Council, uh, Deputy City Manager Lopez got mentioned, but Jim, thank you always for your hard work, especially that work with interfacing um, and help joining us in our, all of our communications uh, with the public. Uh, really appreciate that. The members of our Transportation Commission who looked at this, the members of our Planning Commission who looked at this. Um, in helping us sort of research this project, uh, and again, for joining us in those communications with the public. Um, I think the consultant's report has been extremely helpful. Um, and, you know, I made remarks from this exact seat that were somewhat skeptical of the expenditure, but it's actually been really worthwhile to, to analyze this issue. It's helped to resolve this battle of anecdotes that has sort of um, characterized this discussion debate for so many years, uh, long before uh, some of us were on the council. Uh, this is a topic that has come up many, many times. And, um, you know, we hear from folks who can never find parking on parkland. We hear from people who have never had any trouble finding any parking. Uh, we hear from folks who think pedestrianization will hurt business. And we hear from people who think pedestrianization is going to help business. That's sort of the battle of anecdotes. And there's not much a good decision maker, a government decision maker can do uh, with competing anecdotes. And so that's why this uh, work has been so important. The financial forecast from the consultant's report uh, has shown with, uh, with specificity that we've just seen, uh, the dedication of staff time, uh, the dedication of financial resources uh, that are necessary to make this pedestrian, pedestrianization project successful. And that's super important. If we're going to do it, uh, let's do it the Kirkland way. And the Kirkland way is to make sure that we put the resources uh, behind doing it extremely well. Um, and it's really, and it's also sort of highlighted the opportunity costs um, associated with uh, this project versus all the other really important pedestrianization um, and bicycle infrastructure projects 
that we can envision um, from our active transportation plan and our uh, safer routes to school, to just name a couple. Um, and I really think what's really, what's really helped me this month was uh, the inclusion of the case studies um, that were included in this report. And when you take those together, it becomes very clear what the early indicators are of success for a project like this. Um, what, what are the specific factors that need to be in place at the outset for a pedestrianization project like this to be successful? And Councilmember Kurtz did a good job of, of summarizing that. Um, and also, uh, I agree with her that those indicators just are not here today at this time. Um, pedestrian and bicycle infrastructure remains important uh, to me, and it remains important to many, many Kirkland residents. Um, but by freeing up these resources um, uh, that would otherwise be dedicated to this project, uh, we have an opportunity uh, to open up other opportunities for pedestrian and bicycle infrastructure, uh, and ones that um, I honestly believe we'll, we'll, we'll get more bang for our buck. Um, so I'll be uh, excited to uh, have the further discussion during our regular meeting um, and look forward to, uh, to uh, Council Member Curtis's motion. Thank you, Council Member Pascal. Okay, Council Member Falcone. Thank you, thank you, Madam Mayor. Well, I just wanna echo the thank you to staff, consultants, members of the public. We've um, been it's been a very engaged discussion, <laughs> to say the least, yeah. um, on Park Lane over the, um, over the past few years. Um, so thank you to everyone who's given their time and their energy to give their input on this. Uh, you know, I agree that this was a worthwhile study. We got a lot of great information. We answered a lot of questions that we didn't have answers to months ago. And so thank you to the consultants so much for that. I have said many, many times before in these conversations that we need to look at the, down, the vision of the downtown core holistically. Mm. It was mentioned by some of my colleagues, the, you know, the same sentiment. It's been a while since, as a community, we've looked at um, our vision and what the entire community wants for the future of our downtown core. The um, Park Lane is one piece of the entire vision that was articulated by our community many years ago before I was a Kirkland resident. Um, and so their Kirkland's changed since then, right? And so I agree with the suggestion by some of my colleagues to revisit this as a holistic vision of what the community now wants for the future of our downtown core. Um, it's really important that we fit these pieces together and that we're really thoughtful about that. It was mentioned perhaps as part of our comp plan updates. Um, that's coming up really soon, so I would love to hear what that might look like. I don't want us to forget about this just because we're not potentially, depending on uh, what happens with the motion later this evening, potentially not looking at this short term. Uh, I don't want us to forget about looking at how to make our downtown even more thriving, and not just this year, next year, but looking again as our comp plan does 10, 20 years out. What's the long-term vision? Um, I've been, um, as one of my councilors, uh, fellow councilors mentioned, um, this has been pretty divisive, and I've been um, pretty disappointed by some of the divisiveness of some of the input that we've received. So I think this is a good time to pause, take a step back, and bring the community along and really um, uh, engage the entire community on what we want for the future. So thank you. Thank you, Councilmember Pascal. Thank you, Madam Mayor. So again, appreciate all the input. You know, I started off this this effort, really hoping this process would find a, a path, a potential path forward. Um, but I don't wanna repeat what my colleagues have said. 
I do just want to acknowledge that folks have raised very legitimate issues on both sides of the issue. And there are, you know, many details that, you know, really have to think about um, with any type of uh, closure of Park Lane. But it really came down to two fundamental issues for me uh, that I, I weighed heavily on. One was just the role of, gover of local government. When I was out and about, I often asked people that weren't maybe closely tied to Park Lane what they thought of the issue. And what they would often express to me is, it's a no-brainer. You should close Park Lane. But then when I would tell them that, what well, would your opinion change if no businesses or property owners along the, if you knew no businesses or property owners along Park Lane supported that idea? And they'd say, then you can't close it. And, you know, I, I think as a local government, we, we really need to be thinking about, obviously, the broader uh, community and the public, but also, also those that have the financial stake in, in a decision like this. Um, and that are ultimately vital for its long-term success. And this isn't a situation where I was thinking, oh, we're gonna build consensus and everyone's going to agree. I knew that this was going to be, there's gonna be different opinions on this. I was just looking for even a minority of support, and that's not what we got from the business community at all. Um, and so therefore, I, I really believe that government must balance the interests of community and the businesses and the business interests and look for that right balance. In this case, we haven't found that yet. Um, the, second, the second main issue was really around the cost. And my big thing that I've been really focused on for the last few years is trying to find a sustainable uh, source of funding just to maintain our streets and our, and our pavement. We still haven't cracked that nut. The, our, our, our streets and our pavement are continue, continuing to decline and until we address that, it's really hard to put more maintenance dollars and more maintenance staff that are dedicated to something like this when we, when we have streets that are falling apart. So those are kind of my two things. Now, I do wanna to talk to those that will be very disappointed with where the direction we're having today. Um, this doesn't change my opinion about modal priorities across the city. I, I firmly believe that we must continue to invest uh, in making uh, our facilities safer for walkers, bikers, and transit riders. But this, this is just a conversation that I think needs to, needs to end tonight. Thank you. Thank you, Deputy Mayor Arnold. One of the things that's really interesting about this job is that we can't talk amongst ourselves on a lot of these issues. And while a lot of times you might make predictions on where things might end up, some days you're surprised. <coughs> Tonight's one of the days um, uh, that that, that uh, surprises me. Uh, we've heard a lot about Park Lane from both sides that have been framing this as a yes-no issue. And I keep going back to what we did during the pandemic, where we had a rough consensus around evenings of Park Lane that worked for everybody. That's the kind of consensus we need to get to when we are looking at these changes. I agree with what my colleagues have said in a lot of the interesting insights that came out of this report. One of them, through the case studies, talked about the importance of community partnerships and business partnerships because programming is critical for any of this happening. And programming is not something the city can do alone. This is something that we need that community involvement and we need that business partnership. In fact, some of the examples in there you had local improvement districts where businesses were voluntarily contributing because they could see the benefit. We're clearly not there 
uh, with, with Park Lane, but we've learned that that's a prerequisite to success. There's other things that are prerequisites to success that we need to figure out. This is about connecting our waterfront to Kirkland Urban. What do we do on Park Lane from Main to Third? We haven't talked about that. Um, Councilmember Black mentions the battle over anecdotes. We're going to get some great parking data come the the um, uh, the first of the year about saying how often do those spaces on Park Lane turn over? How often today are people actually walking from the garage or the Lake and Central lot or other street parking because those time limited free spots? Uh, how often are they filled? We don't know. We're going to find out. So there's a couple of things that I'd like to get before we put a bow on this, but I think part of this discussion during a business meeting will be how that happens, uh, possibly, as Councilmember Falcone has talked about, through the comprehensive plan or elsewhere. Thank you. Thank you. I'm going to save my comments for the motion in the main meeting, uh, but I do want to reinforce Councilmember Nixon's baseline uh, requirement. I believe that is something that we have failed to do, and by failing to do that, we really haven't built the faith or built the relationship with with the people who populate that street. So with that, I'm going to declare this um, study session closed. Thank you. We're live, Mayor. We are trying to make the equipment work. <laughs> okay, we are back in session following a study session where we talked about our capital uh, improvement program and finished with a discussion on the future of Park Lane. As a result of that discussion, um, we are going to accept a motion at this time. Council Member Curtis. Thank you, Madam Mayor. Um, I move to amend the agenda to add a new item relating to the future of Park Lane and suspend the rules to allow this item to be considered at the beginning of tonight's agenda. Second. It's been moved by Councilmember Curtis, seconded by Councilmember Black to suspend the, uh, suspend the rules and amend the agenda to include um, the, an item relating to the future of Park Lane. Question uh, is on the motion. All those in favor, please signify by saying aye. 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 Opposed? Motion carries unanimously. Councilmember Curtis. Thank you, Madam Mayor. I will now make my motion. I move that Park Lane shall retain its current status and not be subject to permanent or partial closure to vehicular traffic and parking except for during permitted events and further direct the city manager to cease work on a permanent or partial closures of Park Lane. Second. It's been moved by Councilmember Curtis, seconded by Councilmember Black. Any discussion? Oh, thank you, Madam Mayor. I'd like to make some comments. Um, hi, everybody. <laughs> this motion is difficult for me personally, as I believe in an inspiring vision of Park Lane without cars that is articulated in the materials we have received and the examples of successful, successful closures from around the country. I want to thank our consultants for their excellent report. I particularly want to thank Victoria, our outstanding transportation planner, for her tireless efforts that brought us the information we needed to make this decision. 
And I believe that tonight we have enough information to make this decision. The vision of Park Lane was intended to bring the community together. A closed Park Lane cannot be successful if it is instead dividing our businesses and our residents. This is the case today. Rather than focus only on Park Lane, we should use the next few years as we update our transportation master plan and our comprehensive plan to come together around a shared vision for all of downtown that is green, livable, walkable, and thriving. We should update our decades-old downtown action plan to create a signature connection from Lake Washington waterfront to Kirkland Urban. That will take time. That's the process we will do through our comprehensive plan. More practically, the report we were presented today that shows closing Park Lane to vehicles requires millions of dollars in capital and operating expenses to be successful. As much as we would like to make that vision a reality, we would all struggle to prioritize Park Lane over needed investments in city sidewalks, bike lane, parks, street maintenance, and affordable housing. For these reasons, I hope the council will support this motion. Thank you. Thank you. Councilmember Nixon. Uh, thank you, Madam Mayor. Um, I will uh, support this motion, um, but there are a couple of uh, comments I'd like to make. Uh, first, everyone involved, um, both the advocates for keeping Park Lane open and the advocates for closing it in some way, need to understand that this is not a final, unchangeable decision for all time uh, by the council. It is a deferral of consideration um, of, of changes at Park Lane to be considered as part of the larger visioning uh, for downtown, as uh, Councilmember Curtis said. And so I just want to emphasize that it's critical that everyone remain engaged. The comprehensive plan work is ongoing today, and people need to um, kind of change tactics from what has been with petitions and um, emails and those kind of things to being engaged in the comprehensive planning process. And not just for Park Lane, not just for the, the, this downtown pedestrian uh, vision, but for the good of the entire city. Um, and so uh, please don't relax in any way. Just change the venue of where the discussion is happening, um, but have it be this larger discussion. The other point that I want to raise is one I raised during the study session is that I really feel, as chair of your Tourism Development Committee, that we need to fix Park Lane today. It won't happen today. This is the kind of thing that takes planning and budgeting. You know, I think that getting the electrical outlets and the water and all those other things that were on that slide um, uh, is something that we'll probably have to budget for in the 25-26 budget. But if it's going to get into that, that means that we really kind of have to have the cost estimates and all of that done by the middle of 2024 at the latest. And so I'm not going to ask to amend the motion. Um, maybe I can just get a, a head nod from the city manager. Is this something that you think we can put in um, the work that's ongoing for the CIP for tw uh, 2025 and belong? or beyond so that we can get that in the budget 
um, so that we can really activate Park Lane as a festival street the way it was originally intended. Yeah, I think the mechanism to have that conversation is when the um, staff brings back the mid-by CIP update, which will come to the council in early November. And at that point, there's a chance to provide direction for the full update, which starts in 2024, um, as well as make any decisions on the budget. But I think until you have that full conversation, you won't be able to see what the trade-offs would be. But I would say November would be the time to start that conversation. And do you think you need a separate motion from the council saying, please go do that? I don't believe so. I believe that the information we received from the baseline assessment is sufficient to bring to that conversation and to give the council a chance to start that conversation, decide if you want to go further. Thank you. Thank you. Councilmember Falcone. Thank you, Madam Mayor. Um, well, thank you for your comments, uh, Councilmember Nixon. I have a similar question of something that I want to ensure is part of this decision and just looking for input as to whether that needs to be a formal amendment to the motion or not is um, I've heard several of my council members, including myself, mention how we want to look um, holistically at the downtown plan, the, the downtown action plan. Um, and so I would like us to further direct staff to develop options to update the downtown action plan with a robust community engagement envisioning the future of the downtown area. Is that something that you've gotten enough head nods and comments from council tonight or do we need to do a formal motion to amend the motion? We've talked about updating it with the, you know, transportation master plan and the comp plan updates. Is that sufficient direction? Sorry, I think that's sufficient. I guess that my question would be whether that can be appended to the motion or would it need to be a separate motion as a separate topic or do we think we can? I think I'd rather see it as a separate topic. Okay. I agree. So you just need to have one, but yes, uh, what you articulated I think would be sufficient. I think it just needs to be its own motion. Okay. Uh, I need to make a motion to add that to me. Can you wait till we do this with this message? Okay. Councilmember Black. Thank you, Madam Mayor. Um, so I don't want to reiterate uh, things I said during the study session, uh, but there are folks who, who watch our regular meetings who don't necessarily watch our study sessions. But suffice, I'll refer most folks watching this um, to the remarks I made there. Um, I just want to explain a little bit my second uh, for this motion by Councilmember Curtis. It really... Uh, there were two things that really, um, uh, in this latest uh, iteration, this latest debate, discussion, this latest research, the latest report that really, um, uh, that ended up meaning a lot to me. And that was, one, the, the financial resources that my, my count, myself and my council, uh, fellow council members have talked about, the financial resources to really make this project successful the way that Kirkland uh, is used to doing things. Um, and the uh, and the opportunity costs associated with that. The it's not just the money, but it's also the time, uh, the staff time. Um, and there are uh, a pedestrianization, um, uh, multimodal transportation, bicycle safety, pedestrian safety remain priorities for me and for a lot of uh, Kirkland uh, Kirkland uh, residents. Um, and through some of the processes that we've been talking about, some more, uh, some some of the, um, you know, uh, more comprehensive looks at uh, different projects, I think there's some real opportunities for us to uh, continue to further uh, uh, multimodal transportation, pedestrianization, uh, bicycle, and, uh, bicycle safety throughout the city of Kirkland. Um, so I'm going to, obviously, because of my second, I'm going to be supporting this motion. Thank you, Deputy Mayor Arnold. Thank you, Madam Mayor. Uh, Question for the city manager. 
Um, one of the projects is ongoing is this parking study, and I wanted to mm -hmm. make sure that the way that this motion is phrased that we'd still be gathering that, that data of parking downtown and, uh, and um, uh, what would be the mechanism to receive that information if this motion were to pass. So thank you for that question. So the, those are two entirely separate projects. We just felt that since Park Lane was one of the areas being evaluated, it would be helpful to have that information, but it, it's not linked to this decision at all and would continue and we'd bring back report because it's all of downtown, including marina parking a uh, lot, the waterfront parks along, you know, Lake and Center lot and so forth. So you'd still get that report regardless. Okay, very good. And then just to um, sum up my, my comments from the, the study session, at one point we had a consensus on Park Lane. During the pandemic, we did evenings in Park Lane that had support of merchants, it had support of restaurants, it had support of galleries, it had support of the public that liked that experience. We want to get to that point again. It's going to take uh, some work and some visioning and, and really broadening the question, not just from Park Lane from um, Lake to Maine, but Park Lane from Lake to Third and connecting all the way from the waterfront to Kirkland Urban. Much more things need to happen in the future, but we certainly aren't ready to make a decision on closing that now. I think this is going to be um, one that's best suited for the comprehensive plan, and I'll be supporting this motion. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, in closing, I just want to make a statement. As a retail um, business owner in downtown Kirkland for almost 40 years, I am intimately well-versed in the issues that have been expressed by the business owners or by the property owners and the businesses on Park Lane. While I love the concept of more walkability downtown, and I was a part of the downtown action team, God, oh, so many years ago, um, I think it only makes sense for us to come back with that broader evaluation of what it is we can do to activate downtown. Um, this is a project that I never could have supported with the continued opposition by the business owners that I have worked with intimately for almost 40 years and the property owners not in support of it. It certainly wouldn't be successful. So um, I'm gonna support the, the amendment or the motion that you're gonna make in terms of coming back and figuring out some way for us to look more broadly, particularly since we'll be doing the scramble next year. Um, we need to have all of these things in line. With that, I'm going to say that question is on the motion for Park Lane to retain its current status and not be subject to permanent or partial closure to vehicular tra traffic and parking except for during permitted events and further direct the city manager to cease work on permanent or partial closure options. Uh, that motion was made by Councilmember Curtis, seconded by Councilmember Black. All those in favor, please signify by saying aye. 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 Opposed? Motion carries unanimously. Councilmember Falcone. Thank you, Madam Mayor. Uh, I do not have a for, um, prepared amendment, so this is a little bit on the fly, so bear with me here. This is a motion, sorry, not an amendment, a motion to um, ask staff to develop options to update the downtown action plan with a robust community engagement in order to um, create a vision for the future of the downtown Kirkland area. Second. Moved by Councilmember Falcone, second by Councilmember Curtis to direct staff to come up with a program to update the downtown action plan um, as 
was just described by Councilmember Falcone. All those, or any further discussion? Question is on the motion made by Councilmember Falcone, second by Councilmember Curtis. All those in favor, please signify by saying aye. 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 Opposed? Motion carries unanimously. Thank you. That takes us back to our regular agenda where we are at honors and proclamations. Mm. Uh, the first proclamation we have this after or this evening is the National Hispanic Heritage Month proclamation, which Deputy Mayor Arnold is going to help me with. So, Madam uh, maybe just so we have quite a few people oh. here for that one. They're out in the lobby. Um, may I suggest we maybe do the cert, uh, and then we can That's have great. some folks. Uh, loop out and then we can have another we need move another in. motion to amend the uh, can we just do that by consensus i think you just say without objection can we so without objection can we move the, the cert, cert recognition up please sorry heather <laughs> very interesting stuff always like listening Thank you, City Manager. Uh, thank you, Mayor Sweet, Deputy Mayor Arnold, and Council Members. It is my pleasure once again to bring to you another graduating CERT class. This is CERT 32 um, of our students here. And this class really demonstrated the mindset of preparedness that crosses all of our very diverse cultures and community groups within uh, the Kirkland neighborhoods. Uh, they brought their individual strengths to create a team and that team made sure that everyone had a role, had a part, and was successful in the course and the program together. As you know, they learned about disaster preparedness and first aid and search and rescue and their favorite fire suppression, putting out the flames, that's always a good one. And then they applied all those skills in a disaster drill where we were able to use the fire department training grounds. We brought in a few select injured survivors and a few annoying pets that they won't soon forget. Um, this delivery was actually a joint effort between some of our previous CERT students that came back as facilitators, as well as our paid staff that make this work. And we are very thankful for all of that effort, for them paying forward their CERT experience to these new grads. And we look forward to furthering that process and engaging our students as leaders and facilitators and teachers throughout this program as we move forward. I can't thank all of you enough for your support and your time and all of the efforts that you make to the CERT program. It really does matter. We met with our peers earlier last week and when we talked about CERT programs throughout the community, um, we definitely are ahead of the curve. So thank you all for that. It is through your support that we do that. Representing the class tonight are seven of our 15 participants. I'd like to read their names and their neighborhoods and invite them to come forward and at the end we'll do a group picture with all of you to honor and respect them. So as I call your names, feel free to stand in front. Uh, we have Alice and Nick Atala from the Houghton neighborhood. Suzanne Frint from our market neighborhood. Aaron Jacobson from Lakeview. Tasman Ray Hamoni from Evergreen Hill. Steve Strand from Finn Hill. And in this class, we had a trend that we're loving. We have two parks and community service um, employees that gave up their personal time to come be trained. So we have Amanda Judd and Roxy Reyes. So 
thank you graduates for participating and being here and thank you council for recognizing them and taking time to support them. Carly will grab a quick picture of all of you. Can we get them Have to you guys come over here underneath the Over here under the emblem. Right. Right in front of my Snickers bars. <laughs> Excellent. All right. Thank you all. Thank you. Thank you all. Okay. And now we will start with our National Hispanic Heritage Month proclamation. Could you all join us up here? And the Deputy Mayor is going to read this proclamation. Welcome. Thank you. Around us. Okay, here come. Okay. Wow. <laughs> Welcome. Come on. Come on down. Okay, as I read this proclamation throughout uh, the proclamation, it mentions the Hispanic, Latino, Latin, uh, Latino, Latin, sorry. It says, uh, it mentions the Hispanic, Latino, Latina, Latinx, Latin A um, throughout to make sure that everybody is represented. Uh, as I read this, even though throughout the uh, proclamation it lists it each time, I'm just going to say all of those terms the first time. Thank you. A proclamation of the city of Kirkland proclaiming September 15th through October 15th, 2023 as National Hispanic Heritage Month in the city of Kirkland. Whereas National Hispanic Heritage Month celebrates the histories, cultures, contributions, and influence on American society of whose ancestors came from Spain, Mexico, the Caribbean, and Central and South America. And whereas the observation started in 1968 as Hispanic Heritage Week as a push to recognize the contributions of Hispanic, Latino, Latina, Latinx, Latina community had gained momentum throughout the 60s when the civil rights movement was at its peak and there was growing awareness of the United States multicultural identities. And whereas National Hispanic Heritage Month commemorates the anniversaries of the independence for the Latin American countries of Costa Rica, El Salvador, Guatemala, Honduras, and Nicaragua, all of which celebrate independence on September 15th, while also aligning with Independence Days of Mexico and Chile, which celebrate their independence on September 16th and September 18th, respectively. And whereas, according to the United States Census Population's estimates for 2022, Hispanic and Latino community members represent an estimated 7.5% of the population in Kirkland. And whereas, Although the Hispanic Latino population makes up close to 19% of the U.S. population, they only account for about 2% of the country's elected and appointed officials. And whereas the city is working to amplify the voices of our Hispanic Latino population and increase civic engagement among our Hispanic Latino community members and encourage their involvement on local boards, commissions, elected bodies, through objectives defined in the city's diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging roadmap. And whereas 
In February of 2017, the Kirkland City Council approved Resolution 5240, declaring Kirkland a safe, inclusive, and welcoming community for all people, and directing the city manager to engage the community to determine ways for Kirkland to be more safe, inclusive, and welcoming. And whereas in August of 2020, the Kirkland City Council approved Resolution 5434, committing to actions to examine and dismantle institutional and structural racism in Kirkland, and whereas in July of 2022, the Kirkland City Council adopted a diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging five-year roadmap, which identifies several actions that can help increase civic participation among Hispanic Latino communities, and whereas celebrating National Hispanic Heritage Month helps to ensure that diversity inclusion remains a priority and that we continue to welcome diversity in as many forms and embrace opportunities to showcase diversity in our city. And whereas, to learn more about Hispanic Heritage Month events, visit the King County website, the Central Cultural Mexicano in Redmond, and the King County Library Systems website or branch libraries. So therefore, Mayor Penny Sweet, on behalf of the Kirkland City Council, does hereby proclaim September 15th through October 15th as National Hispanic Heritage Month and encourages the Kirkland community to join us as we celebrate the important contributions made by Hispanic Latino Americans, immigrants from Latin America, and the Latino community, and recognize and embrace the impact that Hispanic culture has had on our lives and our community. Thank you. Okay, my name is Anderson. Thank you, Madam Mayor and City Council. We are representing the Brazilian community in Kirkland. We are so happy to have our Latino heritage celebrate and recognize it. We left our country with difficult challenges and we now, now we are grateful for this country to receive us with great opportunities. Also, I would like to thank people from the church and the community who are here. I'm going to speak in Portuguese. Um, obrigada, senhora prefeita e Câmara Municipal. Estamos aqui representando a nossa comunidade brasileira em Kirkla. Estamos muito felizes por nossa herança latina ser celebrada e reconhecida. Deixamos o nosso país com desafios difíceis e agora somos gratos por este país nos receber com grandes oportunidades. Também gostaria de agradecer a todos da igreja que estão aqui. Muito obrigada. Quick photo. Quick photo. Do you like to put all the proclamations in the center? <laughs>
summarize this. Yeah. All right. Uh, well, thank you, everyone. Uh, I'm going to be reading a joint proclamation of the cities of Kirkland, Bellevue, Issaquah, Redmond, and Sammamish. Uh, whereas the East Side cities of Bellevue, Issaquah, Kirkland, Redmond, and Sammamish have jointly celebrated East Side Welcoming Week for the past seven years, and whereas these cities recognize the importance of ensuring that all residents feel safe, secure, and welcome, and whereas East King County is one of the most racially and ethnically diverse regions in Washington State, with over 35% of our residents coming from places outside of the United States and 38% of residents speaking a language other than English at home. And whereas in our highly mobile region, nearly one in five residents has lived in their current residence for less than one year. And whereas realizing our vision for a welcoming community requires actively addressing the lived experiences of those in our community who do not feel welcome, safe, valued, or included. And whereas historic and current impacts of individual, institutional, and systemic racism that results in harmful disparities in education, employment, income, housing, criminal justice, and quality of life, as well as sense of belonging. And whereas our community, like others across the nation, has structures, systems, and policies that contribute to injustice, racial inequality, and discriminatory, discriminatory treatment against residents who are born in other countries, are black, indigenous, other people of color, including those who hold intersectional identities, LGBTQIA+, faith-based cultures, people with visible and invisible disabilities, and more. And whereas to capitalize on diversity as an asset, our community must strive to create a culture and environment that ensures everyone can belong and thrive. Now, therefore, the mayors of Bellevue, Issaquah, Kirkland, Redmond, and Sammamish jointly proclaim September 8th through the 17th, 2023, as Eastside Welcoming Week and invite the community to engage in opportunities during Eastside Welcoming Week and beyond to learn, connect across differences, and take joint action to achieve a welcoming, equitable, and inclusive community. Thank you, Madam Mayor and City Council. The Brazilian Community Service Organization has been serving our Brazilian immigrant community more than three years. This proclamation and recognition of our work is a huge milestone for us. So we are greatly appreciative of what you are doing at this moment for the whole community. This is just a subset, as you can see. The work the city of Kirkland and the East Side region is doing to celebrate our immigrant community is so appreciative. Uh, the Brazilian community at this moment fares very welcomed, and we feel this sense of belonging, and we feel like we're going to continue this journey. So thank you. Obrigado, senhora prefeita, a Câmara Municipal, nossos agradecimentos. Ficamos honrados, alegres em estar so, é, sob a proclamação. E a Organização de Serviço Comunitário Brasileiro já atende a nossa comunidade de imigrantes brasileiros há três anos e meio. Ah, esta programação é um reconhecimento, em reconhecimento ao nosso trabalho, é muito valioso para nós. Ah, o trabalho que a cidade de Kirchla e a região e de Eastside, do lado leste, está fazendo para celebrar a nossa comunidade imigrante. Uh, significa muito para um povo que, além de alegres, nós somos honestos, muito trabalhador e empreendedores para o futuro da cidade. Uh, a comunidade brasileira 
se sente acolhida mais que antes. E é como se pertencermos, de fato, à cidade de Kirkland. O, nós somos gratos e agradecemos muito. Muito obrigado. Okay, we are at a communications portion of our uh, agenda today. This is time in our meeting when we normally hear from the public on matters which are not quasi-judicial or scheduled for a public hearing, of which there are none scheduled this evening. Please limit your remarks to three minutes as the council will receive up to three comments each on both sides of each issue. If you are present either in person or virtually and would like to address the council during this items from the audience period, please sign up using the online public comment instruction link or in person using the posted QR code. For those participating by phone, please dial star 9 to be recognized to speak. Community members will be called in the order in which they signed up. Items from the audience is an important part of our business meeting, and we ask that everyone be treated with kindness and respect. We ask that you please not clap or applaud after a speaker or express your disagreement with a speaker. We want everyone in Kirkland to feel welcome expressing their viewpoints regardless of content. Because they can be disruptive, signs and placards are not allowed in the council chambers during our meetings, regardless of their content. City Clerk. Mayor, there are eight people signed up to speak this evening in the council chamber, and the first three are Jonathan Hoyer, Joan McBride, and Gemma Aronchik. Super, Jonathan. Thank you, Madam Mayor and Council Members. I'm Jonathan Hewer. I'm the President of Kirkland Parks and Community Foundation, and I am here to speak in support of a matter that the Council is considering later uh, in the meeting, the purchase of the Fisk property on 6th Street. Um, I'm really excited about the possibility of this purchase. I'm kind of passionate about the Cross Kirkland Corridor that the property is adjacent to. I co-founded an event that ran along the corridor for three years called Crossing Kirkland, and I think it's a, an amazing property uh, and um, a great piece of the, of the potential public lands for the city. Um, the CKC master plan, which I revisited in preparation for these remarks, um, talks about a few things that I think uh, you should consider when you're considering this, this uh, purchase. One of the goals of the CKC master plan is to foster a greener Kirkland. And this is a gorgeous property. It has a lot of natural characteristics that I think are worth preserving. It's part of a, um, an expanding commercial corridor, the Houghton area. And preserving this bit of green with a daylit stream in the middle of it would be um, an amazing resource for the people of Kirkland to retain. 
Um, the CKC master plan also mentions the possible acquisition of this particular piece of property. So the, um, the groundwork's been laid. All you guys have to do is push it across the end zone. Um, the entire Kirkland Parks and Community Foundation board supports this effort, and I'm here speaking on their behalf. The board has con committed to contributing $20,000 towards the purchase, and there's a private donor who's already come forward with a commitment to contribute $25,000 additionally towards the purchase of this. We as an organization are going to be working hand in hand with the city and King County towards uh, amassing the funds for this purchase. And for all the community members who are listening tonight, we encourage you to participate. You can reach out to us at hello at kpcf.org, that's H-E-L-L-O at kpcf.org, uh, to say hi and uh, be part of this amazing opportunity. Thank you. Thank you. Next speaker is Joan McBride, followed by Emma Aronchik and Bill Finkbeiner. Welcome, Mayor McBride. <laughs> Hello. Gosh, it's, it's good to see you all. Um, before I begin my comments, um, that kind of uh, follow along with Jonathan's, I first want to say thank you to the council. You are doing such a wonderful job. And <laughs> I want you to know that my family is just so happy with some of the things that you've done, especially through COVID, the, um, the wonderful work you're doing on transportation, keeping us green and verdant, your welcoming uh, uh, stance with all Kirkland citizens, making sure that everyone knows they are essential is so, so important to my family. So I just wanna say on behalf of them, how grateful uh, my family is to each and every one of you and to this amazing staff that you have that carries out uh, your wishes so well. But that's not exactly why I'm here. Um, so I'm here to ask you to support Resolution 5601 to approve the funding for the wonderful plot of land on 6th Street South that abuts the CKC. It is, it is a small parcel, but it is a mighty parcel. With an all-season daylighted steam, stream, beautiful trees, and that little red shack that has been a source of mystery and delight for de decades, we now have an opportunity to enhance the CKC and also the streetscape of 6th Street South. So my two messages that I wanted to share with you tonight is, um, first, I have pledged to the Kirkland Parks and Community Foundation to support them in raising funds to help repay the interfund loan, and I am ready to get started right today. Secondly, um, in my time in Kirkland goes back many years. I started in government here. <laughs> I want to sound tired and old here when I say this. When um, Terry Ellis was a city manager, and what I, want, uh, what I wanted to share with you, that Kirkland has never, ever purchased a piece of land for uh, parks, uh, for trails, for open space, whether it is a big parcel or a small parcel. It had, our city has never, ever regretted it. This is a wonderful opportunity. It's a small but important piece. And I know that everyone will be happy uh, once it is in the city's hands. Thank you very much. Thank you. The next speaker is Gemma Aronchik, 
followed by Bill Finkbeiner and Rex Rempel. Good evening, council members, Mayor Sweet, city leaders. Uh, my name is Gemma Aronchek, and I wanted to introduce myself as the new executive director at the Kirkland Parks and Community Foundation. Um, I'm here tonight with very brief remarks, um, along with a number of my very distinguished board members, um, to say how much I look forward to working with the city in this new role with Kirkland Parks and Community Foundation. Um, as a longtime resident of Kirkland, a mother of three middle schoolers in Lake Washington School District, and now in this executive director role, I know that there is a lot of important community work we have that we can do together to make Kirkland the best city it can be. So I look forward to working alongside you all, our city leaders, to help serve Kirkland and all our neighbors. Thank you for your time tonight. Thank you, Jenna. Next speaker is Bill Finkbeiner, followed by Rex Rempel and Ken McKenzie. Uh, thank you, Madam Mayor, members of the council. Uh, my name is Bill Finkbeiner. I'm a 50-year resident of Kirkland, and every time I come to one of these meetings, I'm just more proud to, of Kirkland and this city and, and what you're doing here and, and leading it. Um, I'm also on the board of the East Rail Partners. The East Rail Partners is an organization that was started in 2019 with uh, leadership from Kirkland uh, to help really coordinate and catalyze and unify the uh, ambitious 42-mile uh, East Rail uh, trail. Um, and so as that organization, East Rail Partners is very much in support of uh, this property acquisition and, and, uh, and the continuance of the Cross Kirkland Corridor Master Plan. Uh, we strongly support, uh, again, uh, the acquisition of the Fisk property. Uh, and uh, we believe that as part of the larger 42-mile East Rail Corridor, corridor uh, it's really integral to the future of the east side as this region continues to grow and develop, and that these types of access points are going to become even more crucial uh, as the East Rail develops and grows. Uh, so we just want to add our name to the uh, course of folks supporting this, and thank you for the work you're doing. Thank you, Bill. The next speaker is Rex Rempel, followed by Ken McKenzie and Alex Zimmerman. Good evening, everyone, and thank you. There's been a lot of energy and passion brought forward by our business owners and residents, um, and a lot of time and effort spent by our city staff and energy brought towards our city leaders around the Park Lane decision. And I want to recognize that there will be some of us who are very pleased with the decision made at this time and some who are very disappointed. But regardless of that, I just want to remind all of us that um, we've had a lot of energy over these two to three acres in the center of the city in the midst of a city that's nearly 17.8 square miles. And there are some of us who shop and recreate in that area of downtown. There are a few of us who work there and none of us who live there. Um, but really, we are doing our living and breathing and dying in areas like Kingsgate and Finn Hill. That's where we live and pray and play and study and shop and do most of our business of our everyday lives. And so I just hope that all of us bring some of that energy and passion to the well-being of the entirety of our city. As much as I enjoy Peter Kirk Park and Kirkland Urban and downtown and Marina Park and Park Lane and the other areas here in the center of the city, it's not even a tenth of 1% of our city. And so I hope that we bring some of that money and time and energy and passion to the well-being of the entirety of our city and recognize that what 
happens with Park Lane will be for our benefit, but not for the ruin or salvation of any of us. Thank you. Thank you. The next speaker is Ken McKenzie, followed by Alex Zimmerman and Jesse Walder. Welcome. Good evening, Madam Mayor and City Council. So thank you for allowing me to be here. Uh, so after the study session out in the lobby, I detected a certain level of enthusiasm and, and appreciation among a group of people that were very interested in keeping Park Lane open. And uh, so thank you. That, I think there's a lot of people that, that feel like this is a, a good step forward. And looking forward, um, I personally am really encouraged by the interest in taking this holistic view of what should happen in downtown Kirkland and how it fits in with all the activities and the, and the changing activities that are going on. Uh, at the same time, over the years, I've had a, a fair number of people express concern, discouragement, maybe even some cynicism about the way Kirkland goes about developing these kinds of plans. And I'm, I'm working really hard to keep them on board. Um, the, the idea that seemed to come across is, as we move forward and, and we think about creating a, a new plan, let's be really open. Uh, let's be open about the scope. Let's, let's have a conversation about the scope. Let's have a conversation about the goals and the implementation options. So as you work through this, different things come up, different ideas, and it'd be really great to have a conversation about all of this stuff. Uh, and, and a data-driven decision process so that we narrow it down to, to the decision that we, that we have consensus about as opposed to, as, as some of my friends said, there's a tendency sometimes to have the decision made and then push the process in that direction. And I'd like to turn that around and, and be really open about this so that when we get done, everybody says, hey, we did the right thing. Thank you. Thank you. The next speaker is Alex Zimmerman, followed by Jesse Walder. Welcome, Mr. Zimmerman. Thank you. Aha, aha, aha. Zichail. Dem Nazi fascist. A mafiosi in bandita who support Iranian Muslim and Russian. That's exactly what is I speak right now. It's a very interesting situation what is we have right now. We have a war right now with Iranian Muslim and Russian. And Democrat Mafia supports this. Yeah. This situation absolutely idiotic. It's not idiotic, it's dangerous. Because when you support us enemy, you know what this means? You're supposed to be, be a criminal. And around all this planet, you know what this means? When somebody country have a war and somebody supports this, and America has this before, yeah, too, you're supposed to be going to jail or execute. But right now, legally, in Seattle, in country, we can support us, enemy, with who you wo, wo have war, and probably will move to number three right now. We probably are not... No, maybe in my life, you know what is mean, what is happening in Seattle, in country. Maybe this vaporizes like a Jewish state vaporizes with eight million Jews. You know what is mean, what is Iranian Muslim one doing this? You know what is mean, and Russian supports them about this. Yeah, exactly. So situation so strange to me, 
And that's exactly what is I want to show you, because my word can don't have only blah, blah. You know what is mean? Everybody in media lie right now. This article what has come from Seattle Times, who support Iranian Muslim. Guys, you understand about what we are talking right now? Official government in Seattle and King County support Iranian Muslim. Seattle Times is the biggest newspaper in America. When they have article for support Iranian Muslim, situation absolutely come to absurd. And for my understanding, you know what it means, and I'm a very educated man, I read thousand books in my life. I never see somebody officially, you know what it means, can support enemy. Guys, what are you talking about? So I speak right now to everybody who listen to me, and exactly to this happy cow who support Democrat. You understand about your talking? Why are you so happy? With $6 gas, with double for rent and housing, for triple for food and crime? Why you support Democrat? Can you explain to me, are you a freaking idiot? For the last 20 years, they make us life miserable. So I speak right now to everybody. They are bandito. They are criminals. They don't like America. They don't like American. This article in Seattle Times from August 13 is exactly show. So I am right. So I need to Thank right you, now. Thank you, Mr. Zimmerman. This Time it? is up. Thank you very much. On behalf of council, I simply want to say that I am sorry. If we are sorry if any of the comments we just listened to are offensive to anyone. Last speaker signed up to, is Jesse Walder. Thank you, Madam Mayor. Thank you, council members. Um, first and foremost, we just really wanted to thank everyone here um, for putting Park Lane to a vote. Um, we just, on behalf of all the businesses, we're really appreciative and we feel heard. And so I, that's really important to all of us. And, um, you know, I know there was a lot of emails and, um, you know, the study session and Zoom calls. And again, we're very appreciative and thank you so much. So just kind of going forward, um, you know, we talk about the parking study, just something to consider. It's hard to quantify how many people we lose um, to Bellevue or Totem Lake, places that have bountiful parking. So, you know, I just think sometimes we have to take these studies with a grain of salt. Um, and then a lot of people mentioned today that this vision for this corridor kind of preceded you. Um, and I think a lot of us are left asking, well, whose vision is it? And as, as much as some people are tied to it, I do hope that we can get further engagement from the community and the businesses because things evolve and change. And a lot of us do have a concern with the corridor and not just from a business standpoint, but um, it would, we, a lot of us feel it would be severely underutilized for most of the year. And as somebody mentioned before, even with summers now and with wildfires, a lot of people can't enjoy a corridor even during the summer months. Um, you know, people brought up the divisiveness and I just want to say that none of us want to live in a divisive world or community. Um, you know, this was kind of put upon us and it was kind of considered post-COVID. So businesses had already fought hard to survive and we wanted to continue working and supporting our families and employing people that mean a lot to us. And of course, you know, that's gonna spark a lot of um, emotion. And so it was never to be divisive, but to just kind of fight on behalf of 
um, those that work for us and our families. And a lot of the information that was in the survey during COVID or post COVID, I do not think is really relevant now. A lot of us on Park Lane gave that information based on COVID restrictions. And we don't necessarily feel it should be used going forward because almost all of that information is different now or responses are different now. Um, and yeah, again, we just, we would love the involvement as we talk more about the development and vitalization of downtown. And again, we just really want to say thank you for engaging with us and having us feel heard. Thank you so much. Thank you. That's the last speaker signed up. Okay, is there anyone else who wishes to address the council at this time? Seeing none, I will declare this items from the audience period closed. Before we move to the consent calendar motion, I'd like to ask Deputy Mayor Arnold to give us an audit of the accounts. Thank you, Madam Mayor. We had payroll in the amount of $10,012,246.60 and bills in the amount of $11,916,609.08. I would note that this reflects two payroll cycles and two bill cycles, given uh, our August recess. Thank you. Thank you. Can I get a motion to approve the consent calendar? So moved. Second. I'm moved by Councilmember Falcone, seconded by Councilmember Black. Any discussion? All those in favor, please signify by saying aye. 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 Opposed? Motion carries unanimously. Did I see that there is somebody in the audience who does want to address the council? There was an ordinance, so we need to do a roll call vote for the oh, I'm sorry. calendar. Uh, can we do that, and then can we ascertain? Jack, did you want to address us? All right, sit down for just one second while we do this roll call. Councilmember Nixon? Yes. Councilmember Black? Yes. Councilmember Curtis? Yes. Councilmember Falcone? Yes. Councilmember Pascal? Yes. Deputy Mayor Arnold? Yes. Mayor Sweet? Yes, thank you. Mr. Stop. You want to you want to address us just briefly? Thank you all. I'll make this brief. I thought that Sue had signed me up and miscalculations. <laughs> anyway, I was here to speak about, of course, the Park Lane issue uh, and representing the senior community as such. And since you've all resolved that issue and put it into a bigger context for the future, I applaud you all for the work you've done here, and I very much appreciate it. I will make one point. My little piece of focus on this, even though I've been a businessman within this community, managed a disability charity in this community, volunteered in a lot of places in this community, my hearts and focus have always been on those who are marginalized, like seniors and people with disabilities. And when you talk about parking as a study that's coming, that's an area I hope you'll come to the senior council and talk to us about that. Because parking is a real issue when you have to use a cane or a walker or a wheelchair to get someplace once you're parked. Or if you have a disability accessible van and you have to park that and lower the ramp to get your wheelchair out. I think you all know that. And you know that the ministry that I managed before, Bridge Disability Ministries, has a recycling program that a few years before COVID recycled, donated wheelchairs, walkers, and canes to the tune of $4 million worth of durable medical goods. Most of that came on these east side communities. There's a lot of people who have those needs, and when we think about parking, we really want to consider how we can accommodate those needs. We have ADA, but sometimes the law doesn't go as big and as broad 
as the 30% of the people in this community who are labeled as seniors. So thank you very much. Thank you, Jack. Okay, final call. Last call. All right. That takes us to our business agenda. The first item on our business agenda is the Child Care Initiative Update and Lake Washington Institute of Technology Early Childhood Center Partnership Opportunity. City Manager. Okay, thank you, Madam Mayor. Um, we're excited to explore this opportunity with the Lake Washington Institute of Technology. Um, looking for council feedback and direction tonight. I'm here to make the presentation as our Human Resources Director, Chuck Deaver, along with our special guest, Dr. Ruby Hayden, who's the Vice President of Student Services for the Lake Washington Institute of Technology. Good evening, Madam Mayor, Deputy, uh, Deputy Mayor Arnold, and members of the City Council. Good evening. Um, I am here this evening to uh, provide you with an update on our Employee Child Care Initiative. I'm actually accompanied by a couple of city employees, Carly Jorger, our Senior Management Analyst, George Dugdale, um, one of our finance managers, as well as uh, the Vice President of Student Services from Lake Washington Institute of Technology, Dr. Ruby Hayden, behind me. As you all know, the 2023-2024 City Work Program um, asked employees to review the um, personnel codes, policies, and programs and practices to ensure that Kirkland is a preferred employer that attracts and retains talented and diverse employees. Um, back in May of 2023, we provided uh, the City Council with a child care initiative report um, at the financial retreat. And um, subsequently, we've come up with two possible options for providing quality, affordable, and accessible childcare to Kirkland employees. Um, first of which, we were um, we issued a request for proposals for on or near site childcare services. And secondly, uh, staff have been engaging with Lake Washington Institute of Technology on a potential partnership. Uh, so first, I'd like to just very quickly go through the um, RFP process and the responses that we received. Uh, we had posted a request for proposals on June 27th and closed that request for proposals on July 24th. The city received four responses. Um, the, um, the responses came from Bright Horizons, Learning Care Group, Kinder Care, and We Care. Um, and what we assessed from those responses was that we had three possible solutions to provide child care to City of Kirkland employees. Um, one, access to existing network of child care centers throughout the area um, and within Kirkland. Uh, there were also solutions for emergency backup care as well as a possibility to look at building and retrofitting or retrofitting a dedicated child care center uh, near site to City Hall or the Justice Center. Uh, the estimated annual operating costs from all those proposals ranged anywhere from $500,000 to $1 million with an additional approximate amount of $5 million for capital costs um, for building or retrofitting uh, a facility. So that is item number one where we're seeking staff count, um, we're 
staff is seeking council direction on proceeding with vendor interviews. We have um, halted any further proceedings with those um, vendor responses awaiting council uh, direction on that. Um, so secondly, we have engaged with Lake Washington Tech, uh, Institute of Technology for a potential partnership. Uh, a little bit about that. Um, the, the Early Learning Center for LW Tech is an on-campus education center for children um, of students, employees, and community members. The center has been in operation for nearly 30 years, and care is provided to children 18 months to six years of age. Um, we are looking at extended hours to be able to provide child care services to Kirkland employees from 6 a.m. to 6 p.m., and tuition rates would be discounted uh, from the community member pricing, which could potentially be further subsidized by the city of Kirkland. Um, just a quick note that any new benefits will need to be bargained with Kirkland's represented employees. The first year of cost would be a maximum of $338,000 all said and done um, to the city, depending on employee cost share and enrollment. The partnership would allow Lake Washington Institute of Technology to hire three new teachers initially, um, and that would allow us to um, open up additional room for, for different age bands, and it would require the city to commit at least 15 spaces to their uh, child care facility. We believe there is sufficient interest amongst current employees to explore a pilot program, um, and of course any unfilled spaces we could use as a re recruitment tool or we can work with LW Tech um, to give that back to community members who may be on the wait list for, for spaces. So next up I'd like to invite Dr. Ruby Hayden up to the podium to provide uh, a quick summary of the LW Tech uh, facility and program. Welcome Dr. Hayden, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me here tonight. I do appreciate it. Um, as a 20-year resident of the city of Kirkland, I'm pleased to be here talking with you tonight. I've also worked at Lake Washington Institute of Technology for those 20 years as well. So have um, some information to share with you and certainly I'm open to any questions at the conclusion of our presentation tonight. So our Early Learning Center, as mentioned, we provide care for the students of our college, um, for our employees at the college, and we are also open to community members. And we serve that age range of 18 months to pre-kindergarten, so approximately six years in age. So that's what we're licensed for. Uh, we currently have enough space for up to 54 children and their families at any given time. Uh, one of the points of pride for our center is that we accept the DSHS subsidy for low-income parents, which is particularly important for our students. We're also one of the only centers in the entire east side that has no cap on the DSHS subsidy. Most centers cap at 15 to 20% of families being eligible to use that subsidy at their location. And we're also extremely pleased that we're going to have some new buildings uh, coming in fall of 2024, which will allow us to expand capacity dramatically. We'll be able to go up to about 104, or 114 spaces for children in the center, which is a, a huge area of interest for us to expand. 
So I'll talk a little bit about the history of the program. We opened for childcare in the mid-90s, and originally our purpose was that we served as a lab site for students who were enrolled in our college's early childhood education program. So that meant if they weren't already working in the early childhood industry, they could work at our child care center and get their lab experience and their practical hands-on experience for their classroom learning. And we expanded beyond that and saw that there was truly a need for our students, employees, and the community. So that is not our sole purpose anymore. It's just one of the benefits that we still offer. If you're familiar with the Early Achievers rating in the state of Washington for child care, we're currently rated a three, and that system is currently under review. So we are waiting to be re-rated once the state of Washington revises their rating system. Early Achievers is kind of like a quality assurance and quality control uh, mechanism in the state of Washington for child care centers. And then the other thing that is important to us is we are not for profit. We're not trying to earn money. We just want to break even on all of our costs so that we can support our wonderful teachers and support the families that they take care of at the Early Learning Center. So in terms of our current costs, this is going into our fall quarter, our students pay a rate for toddlers at just above $1,700 a month. Pre-K is $1,600. For college employees, it's a little bit more, 1800 and 1700 respectively, because the college does subsidize for our students and our employees. And then again, because we're nonprofit for community members, it's 2100 and um, uh, uh, 2000 respectively. And our proposal with City of Kirkland would be to make the price for City of Kirkland employees less than our community rate in acknowledgement of a standing partnership. A little bit about our employees who work in the center. Um, our director of the center, we're very lucky, she has over 20 years experience working in child care and has all of her state certifications um, in early childhood ed, but she also has her bachelor's degree in human resources, so she brings a lot of combination strengths to the center in terms of running it from a business perspective, as well as bringing all of the background in early childhood ed. Our current five wonderful teachers, three of them have their associate's degree in ECE, one has a bachelor's degree in another field, but then she decided to change into early childhood ed and got her state certification here. And we have one person who's got her state certification and is just one class shy of her associate's degree. So we're looking forward to celebrating with her once she finishes. I'm also quite pleased with the longevity of our team. Um, as a, a parent myself, my son, 15 years ago, was a student and a child enrolled at the Child Care Center, and his teacher, Maddox, is still um, a, a wonderful teacher working with us. All of our staff are up to date in their STARS, which is mandatory professional development for ECE, as well as their first aid CPR. And our staff have a very strong relationship with the agency Child Aware. So when we're doing our biannual developmental screenings with all of the children in the center, if we see that there are delays or anything that might indicate that there is a disability with the child, we contract with Child Aware and work with the parents to make sure that we're taking care of that child and the family. Um, our instructors are very uh, compassionate and uh, want to make sure that uh, those children have a wonderful experience, even if there are delays that are impacting uh, their ability to be in the classroom. And then just a quick overview of who our parents currently are. 100% of our student parents currently are um, low income and female. 32% uh, of our parents at the center identify as a black indigenous or person of color. And 9% of all of our parents are first generation to college students themselves. 
In terms of our philosophy as a center, we're really focused on that nurturing, safe environment, and very particular focusing in on how uh, children learn through play, um, that they get to practice decision-making and that social interaction with their peers by playing. Uh, and we fundamentally believe that that is how children learn best at this age. So our curriculum is focused on those developmental milestones and how to flexibly, flexibly meet um, children's needs and interests. So while those planned curriculum activities are there for all of our classrooms, it also means that uh, we want to make sure that the child gets to balance that with free choice in art or music, language, uh, their pre-math skills, science skills, things like that. Um, because if they can do all of that, the combination of the planning plus the play, that's how they build self-esteem and independence and problem solving. And that um, all takes place because they get to make choices that impact how the classroom environment moves and operates on a daily basis. And so that may be different than other childcare centers that you have looked at. So our focus is on full-time care. Um, we are exploring the possibility of part-time options or maybe share options with City of Kirkland. And currently we have closures that match our college's academic calendar. So we're also in exploration talks related to what we could do during uh, our typical closures that meet the needs of City of Kirkland. And our schedule, 6 a.m. to 6 p.m. Uh, we ask for folks to drop off no later than 10, pick up no earlier than 2, just so that children have consistency and reliability in their schedules. Exceptions, of course, for emergencies. And we don't do more than 10 hours of care for any child without an exception um, per licensing uh, related to that they work a 10-hour shift or something like that. And then as I mentioned earlier, we are very excited about having our replacement project where we will get brand new uh, portables uh, moved in to replace our current portables. Um, and we're going to place them in a new area of the campus. So if you've been to our campus, I know several of you have, um, we have a little hidden uh, parking lot tucked behind our horticulture center that is farther away from the road and closer to the main campus where we bring the children for um, story time at the library or being able to do a special project in the culinary area and so it would be a much safer route for the children and allows us to have zero interruption of service so families will be able to drop their children off at the existing child care center and then we'll move in over a weekend and then they'll start using the new center so there'll be zero disruption of service even though we're replacing the portables. And then finally, I want to make sure that we talk a little bit about risk management as a center. Um, our fiscal stability, we've been in continuous operation since the mid-90s. The only disruption to service we've ever had is the COVID-19 pandemic, where we did shut down per Governor Inslee's orders, but we were one of the first childcare centers to reopen in early June of 2020, as soon as we were eligible to do so. Um, and as needed, the um, college does increase a subsidy if there is a fiscal emergency. So COVID is a great example of that. We maintained all of our teaching staff through COVID, even though they did not provide childcare for approximately four months to children. They did Zoom calls and things like that with our parents and children in order to do story time and try to keep them engaged. But we maintained 100% of those salaries. We didn't have any income at that time for the center, so that's an example of there was a fiscal crisis, the college stepped up, so we were confident in our fiscal stability. 
terms of our complaints, um, in the past three years, we've only had two in the past three years, and there were very low-level complaints resolved with a quick phone call from licensing, and it was resolved by the end of the day. Uh, and finally, in relationship to the COVID um, pandemic, I will mention we've only had one COVID-related closure since the pandemic started. It was for a week. And other than that, our safety measures have made sure that we have not had any COVID outbreaks amongst our students or staff. Thank you very much for your time. Thank you. <clears throat> Council, if any questions of Dr. Council? Okay, thank you. It's a pretty comprehensive report. Mm -hmm. Oh, Councilmember Falco. Thank you, Madam Mayor. I won't get into all of my thank yous, but I just have to say before I ask my question that I am so, so, so excited about this opportunity. To me, this is one of the biggest things that we've, we've done in a while as a city to really um, help really uh, align with our values of being a really truly welcoming and inclusive place um, and breaking down barriers to folks to be able to, to work here in the city of Kirkland. So I'm thank you so much to staff and thank you so much for um, uh, Dr. Hayden for, for this presentation tonight. Um, I just have a, a quick question, something I didn't see in the memo or in the presentation as to what does the, um, it's a little bit in the weeds, but what would the um, the contract look like as far as time commitment? For I know that can vary um, pretty greatly in childcare facilities. Is it like a month to month? That like how much notice, advance notice, typically needs to be given? I understand some of those details might be yet to be negotiated, but I'm curious how your center currently handles that. Sure. So obviously, we're still in conversations about what things could look like between us and City of Kirkland. The way we currently handle things is it's very open. We serve a student body that is um, comes and goes as needed since we're a public open access to your college. Um, so it's a monthly contract. So if by the end of the month you're moving on, then we accept that and we don't charge you. If an emergency happens where a student has to leave because let's say it's a medical emergency or something like that, um, we would let them out of even that contract early. We've been historically incredibly flexible and generous around contracts. Great, thank yeah. you so much. Thank you, Dr. Hayden. And council members, you'll have another opportunity to ask questions um, following this presentation. But I just wanted to very quickly talk about the next steps here. Um, staff is seeking council feedback and direction on um, how we can best bring childcare benefits to Kirkland employees. Um, so initially, having a conversation about how to proceed with our vendors, um, and those who responded to the RFP, and secondly, um, asking council to consider adopting resolution R-5598 by motion. Uh, just a quick run through of the terms in the resolution, it would authorize our city manager to negotiate an agreement with LW Tech to expand access to quality and affordable childcare for employees. Um, it advances the city work program. It'll allow us to reserve slots at a not-for-profit rate um, and create flexible partnerships that can scale up um, as, as the need arises um, in terms of our employees' childcare needs. Um, additionally, under Section 2, you'll see that it, uh, the city manager is directed to negotiate the terms of an interlocal agreement um, that would meet key interests, including um, allowing employees to access the Early Learning Center's existing child care program. Uh, Kirkland would pay LW Tech for predetermined number of spaces, um, and at this point we're talking about 15 spaces would reserve that commitment um, and, and allow for us to enter into a contract. Employees would pay tuition through payroll deduction. 
And Kirkland then has an option to apply a subsidy for further uh, discounts to that rate. Um, the center would be accessible from 6 to 6, 6 a.m. to 6 p.m. Monday through Friday. Um, there is, a, I, I'm not sure if Dr. Hayden mentioned, um, there is a, a time period where there are four weeks where there are annual closures based on the school schedule. Um, and so in order for us to work with LW Tech to keep those doors open, they would consider a separate daily rate that would apply in allow employees to access that center during those closures. Um, there would be a one-time contribution of fees for childcare careers, which is basically a headhunter service to, um, to, to help them hire those teachers that are needed um, to provide these services. And we would also talk about exploring expanded partnerships in the future, um, such as potentially looking at swing shifts or night shifts um, that would then cater to our public safety employees. With that, another opportunity for you to ask questions before considering the motion. Oh, Councilmember Black. Uh, thank you, Madam Mayor, and uh, thank you, Director Deaver, for all your work and your staff's work on this. And um, uh, I wanted to ask uh, a question. I expect I'm expecting, although I'm no have no assurance, but I'm expecting a motion shortly for uh, adoption of Resolution 5598. Uh, but in the meantime. You have asked us this uh, question, I think, on the previous um, slide about um, our our direction from the council to staff on how to proceed with the um, the vendor responses. I guess what I'd ask, uh, what I what I'm wondering, the way I'm looking at this is if if there is a motion and it is adopted uh, to adopt Resolution 5598. Um, the, what gaps does the staff see if we're trying to provide quality and affordable health care to Kirkland workers? Workers, what 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 gaps would exist that we would be trying to fill with further engagement with the vendors who responded to the RFP? Absolutely, and that's a great question, Councilmember Black. Um, obviously, if we engage with LW Tech, it is um, it is centralized here in Kirkland, so it caters to those employees who are within the immediate vicinity who can drop off their children, come to work, or drop off the children, go back home if they have remote work. Um, there are a, a a large number of employees who work um, and commute to to City Hall and and to the City of Kirkland, and that might not be convenient for them to do that dealing with traffic and whatnot. Um, and so potentially having another vendor that has a network of childcare centers, um, you know, throughout the, the King County region, Snohomish County, um, it may potentially allow us to cater to other employees with that need. So um, obviously we'd have to explore all that. But um, as I had mentioned with um, the four vendors, what we found was either we build our own facility elsewhere near near site or on site, um, or we, you know, some of some of these vendors provide the backup care, emergency care that might be needed by some parents, um, just on a, you know, case by case basis, and then as as well as that provider network. So I think there are a number of things we would still continue to explore if we proceeded with interviews with these vendors. Okay, I appreciate that, and that makes sense. Um, on the emergency backup care, uh, that. You've identified that as, as a gap. So that's not something that we necessarily foresee being able to fill for our employees through the relationship with, with the likely structure of our relationship with LW Tech. 
Well, we are actually having these types of conversation with Dr. Hayden and, and her colleagues. Um, they're very flexible in terms of what, um, it's hard for me to speak on her behalf, but very, very flexible in terms of um, some of the ideas that we've brought up. Um, they're, they're happy to explore those things, including the swing shifts, including you know potential um, ability to per, perhaps um, for a designated position, if it were a full-time um, allocation of a childcare slot, we might be able to carve that out between two employees and have them swap that one space. So we're looking at all of our potential options there. Okay. Well, I will say that to try to help answer the question, because you are looking for our um, guidance, I, I do like the idea of um, continuing to engage with those vendors who can offer um, that quality and affordable health care uh, where some of our workers, you know, meet them where they are, where, where they are as far as where they uh, live and their commute. And so I would be interested in that scope of, of engage, further engagement. Um, and then I guess it, I've already, maybe I've already hinted that I'll be supporting um, whoever's going to move for a resolution of R5598. Thanks. And I'm excited, and I'm excited about it. <laughs> Thank you. Councilmember Falco. Thank you, Madam Mayor. Well, thank you for that transition, Councilmember Black, because I would like to move that we adopt Resolution R5598, authorizing the city manager to negotiate an interlocal agreement with Lake Washington Institute of Technology for childcare services for City of Kirkland employees. Second. Moved by Councilmember Falcone, seconded by Councilmember Black uh, to move Resolution 5598 authorizing the city manager to negotiate an interlocal agreement with Lake Washington Institute of Technology for child care services for city of Kirkland employees. Discussion? Councilmember Falcone. Thank you, Madam Mayor. I'll just um, speak to the motion a little bit. Uh, like I mentioned earlier, I'm really excited about this uh, opportunity. I am thrilled that we're living our values um, as a city to truly be inclusive and welcoming um, and to help provide the service for our, our um, City of Kirkland employees. Thank you for engaging employees in this process too. I was really happy to um, hear about that as it was happening and to, and to read about that in the memo as well. Uh, I also just wanted to say um, kudos to the authors of the memo too because I had some questions as I was reading it and then later on the questions were answered so I got to scratch them off. Um, so thank you for that. It was really thoughtful and really detailed. Some of which um, addressed tonight that I just wanna highlight um, I appreciate that um, you mentioned that we're still looking for ways to explore some of the gaps, some of which may be addressed in this resolution and some, as Councilmember Black mentioned, might be addressed elsewhere. Uh, you know, thinking like you mentioned the swing shift. Um, I don't know that it's been mentioned, but also infants is something that was addressed in the memo. I think that's a, a really important gap as well that, that, um, that I would be very interested in us continuing to pursue discussions on. Um, Backup care, whether that's part of this and or um, another provider, um, is something that's really, really crucial as well. And, and like you mentioned, other potential geographically dispersed um, child care options uh, for folks, whether that means a subsidy or an agreement with, with another organization. So I fully support this resolution and <laughs> want us to continue to um, explore those gaps. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Further discussion? Seeing none, the question is on the motion to approve resolution 5598, moved by Councilmember Falcone, seconded by Councilmember Black. Uh, all those in favor, please signify by saying aye. 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 Opposed? 
Motion carries unanimously. Thank you very much. Thank you, everyone. Okay, that takes us to, do, do we want to take a break? Okay. I think we'll just take a 15-minute break. And a bio break, I guess. <clears throat> Somebody tell me what 15 and 52 is. Good. Okay, 907, we'll be back.
Thank you. We are back in session following a, a short break, and we are at the next item on our agenda, which is potential property acquisition in support <clears throat> of the Cross Kirkland Corridor Master Plan. City Manager. Okay, thank you, Madam Mayor. So this was the subject of some of our uh, public testimony. Uh, here to give you the overview of the potential acquisition is our Deputy City Manager, Beth Goldberg. Welcome, Beth. Good evening, Madam Mayor, Deputy Mayor, and Council Members. I am uh, told that uh, you're a tough crowd tonight, so <laughs> I'm hoping this image kind of sets a, a, calm, a calm stage. So, um, moving right along, uh, I swear I tested this before I got started tonight, and it's not working. It is coming. It's moving the box. Sorry, I'm back. <laughs> so uh, we are here tonight to talk about the potential acquisition of the property at 212 6th Street South. Um, this is in support of uh, some of the goals articulated in the Cross Kirkland Corridor Master Plan, and I'll talk about that in a moment. But uh, first of all, some of the, the facts behind uh, the property. Uh, it is listed for sale at $995,000, and we understand that the owner has received multiple offers in excess of $850,000 from potential home builders. Um, but we also know from our conversations from talking with the owner that um, they are willing to consider selling the property to the city of Kirkland for $800,000, um, understanding that it would be preserved as uh, park space and uh, named uh, the Fisk Family Park. I'm cursed. <laughs> okay, there we go. Sorry, now I'm not cursed. So, um, so the property is located adjacent to the Cross Kirkland Corridor in the Moss Bay neighborhood, um, and it is zoned uh, for low-density residential. So um, if um, this was uh, sold on the private market, chances are it would be redeveloped um, as, as um, a home or homes. The, acre, the acreage of the property is 0.42 acres, just under a half an acre. And as I mentioned at the outset, uh, the Cross-Kirkland Corridor Master Plan contemplated acquisitions of properties in this segment of uh, the trail. Um, to support the naturalistic stretch of the trail in a, matter, a manner that adds interest but not overactivation. Um, and as you saw from the picture at the outset, um, this is, it's, a, it's a very natural setting. Um, and it also provides an opportunity to daylight Everest Creek crossing and the connection to Everest Park. So in terms of financing the acquisition um, at $800,000, what uh, we are proposing here today is that uh, Kirkland would contribute $200,000 worth of park impact fees um, as, as an initial payment and then use a $600,000 
interfund loan from the Surface Water Management Fund to cover the rest of the costs. That would be a three-year interfund loan. And the strategy behind using the interfund loan is it would provide uh, us time to work with King County, the Kirkland Parks Foundation, and um, other potential partners to um, identify funds outside of the city of Kirkland to offset that $600,000 uh, interfund loan that I just mentioned. So together that would get us to the $800,000 worth of costs. Um, in terms of park impact fees, that would be our upfront uh, contribution or our ongoing contribution. Um, there's a forecast at the bottom of the slide that is showing um, and the annual estimated revenue in, in that fund, and there would be more than enough over this period of time um, to cover the $200,000. Um, in terms of recommendations, staff recommends that the council adopt resolution R5601, which would do three things. It would approve the purchase and sale agreement um, allowing us to acquire the property. It would authorize use of $200,000 in park impact fees to cover a portion of the purchase price and then authorize another $600,000 as a three-year interfund loan from the Surface Water Management Fund to cover the remaining purchase price. So that is um, our recommendation today and now can open it up to questions and discussion. Discussion, Councilmember Curtis. Thank you, Madam Mayor, and thank you, Beth. Um, so if we pass this resolution and if this sale goes forward, what are the next steps as far after purchase as far as um, assessing what we do with the site, what the ongoing maintenance costs are, signage, so forth? I'm looking at you instead of Beth, sorry. <laughs> not here. <laughs> So we actually don't have a, a lot of thought have, has gone into that yet um, until we actually have the acquisition. So we would continue to assess the site every, I think you all know, we go down the CKC, you know, um, mostly every day and we kind of look at all the properties along the CKC. So um, I'd be talking to both Public Works and Parks about how to like assess to maintain the site. Um, our intent would be to purchase it quickly. So right after, if the council approved it, we'd actually send the money and get ownership as quickly as we can. And then we'd sit down and figure out between public works and parks exactly what we're going to do next. Um, I hadn't anticipated doing anything with the property itself without coming back with a little like, mini kind of master plan discussion yeah. with the council. So we would kind of leave it natural as is in the short term and then ask if the council wants to, for example, if you want to have like a light playground on it or something. But we would, we would come back and have that as a full council discussion before we did anything. One of the things I'd be interested in the short term is um, – removing the black barrier barrier between the property and the CKC. Hmm. So, and let's bring some goats in. <laughs> right, yeah. So um, that would, you know, be a quick thing mm -hmm. that I'd be interested in doing. Oh. Thank you. Thank you. Can I make a motion? Uh, you may. Anybody else? Um, Madam Mayor, I'd like to make a motion to approve resolution uh, R5601, authorizing the city manager to execute a real property, per real estate property purchase and sale agreement. Second. Moved by Councilmember Curtis, seconded by Councilmember Black uh, to approve resolution 5801. Any further discussion? Uh, can I speak to my motion? I just really want to say that I support uh, the purchases of this property, and I think the former mayor 
McBride said it very clearly, we never regret purchasing park property. Um, and it really does fulfill our responsibilities as far as outlined in the CK master plan. Um, I think the open stream is special and rare. Um, I envision this as a quiet respite, maybe a couple picnic tables, not with a lot of activation. One of the things I'm super excited about is the education opportunities of open streams and Kirkland's watershed and how mm -hmm. all water flows downhill to Lake Washington. And I think that as a member of the KCD advisory group, there could be grant opportunities and education collaborations that could happen with this property. Um, so I hope the rest of the council members will support it. Thank you. Thank you. Further discussion, council member Pascal. Thank you. Thank you, Madam Mayor. I have a proposed amendment to resolution 5601. And the intention of this amendment is to specifically state in resolution that park impact fees are to be utilized and that the property is being purchased for park purposes rather than for some other purpose. Uh, that actually isn't specifically mentioned in the resolution. So my, I'd like to make a motion to amend resolution 50, 5601 on e-page 489 lines 41 to 42 by striking out park fees and inserting in its place park impact fees and striking out the word this and by inserting of this property for park purposes at the end of the sentence. So that section two reads as follows. The city council hereby authorizes the use of $200,000 in park impact fees to fund acquisition of this property for parks purposes. Second. So moved by council member Pascal, seconded by council member Falcone to amend the motion um, as he just described. Any further, or any discussion? Uh, question is on the motion to adopt the amendment to the motion as moved by Councilmember Pascal, second by Councilmember Falcone. All those in favor, please signify by saying yes or aye. 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 Opposed? The amendment passes. Councilmember or Deputy Mayor Arnold. Thank you, Madam Mayor. Uh, I also have an amendment that I would like to uh, propose. We've heard a lot of interest from the community and some fundraising that's actually going on. And our, as the Deputy City Manager has mentioned, our expectation is that we uh, pay off the interim fund loan through um, some of these partnerships and external funding. The resolution doesn't actually say that, and I'd like to make it explicit by adding a section five that says uh, the city manager is directed to pursue external funding and partnerships to repay the interim loan authorized in section three. So I'd like to move this as amendment two shown on your screen. We move by Council Deputy Mayor Arnold, seconded by Councilmember Falcone, to amend resolution 5601 by adding section five as described. Any discussion? Okay, the question is on the motion to amend uh, resolution 5601 by adding section five. Moved by Deputy Mayor Arnold, seconded by Council Member Falcone. All those in favor, please signify by saying aye. 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 Opposed? Motion carries. Okay, this takes us back to the original motion moved by Councilmember Curtis, seconded by Councilmember Black, to adopt Resolution 5801 as adopt as amended. As amended, yeah. All those in favor, please signify by saying aye. 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 Opposed? Motion carries unanimously. Thank you very much, Beth. Pretty pictures. <laughs> yeah.
And that takes us to next item, the utility box art wrap draft work plan. City Manager. Okay, thank you, Madam Mayor. So as you might recall, through our LRM process, uh, council had asked that we uh, not only wrap some of the art that has just been recently wrapped, but also come back to the council with a draft work program for how we might wrap future utility boxes and current utility boxes. Uh, so this is our first chance to come before you with a draft proposal, and we're looking for council feedback on that. And here to give you that presentation is Diana Hart, our Government Affairs Manager. Welcome, Diana. Thank you. Good evening, Council. Um, so tonight we have a couple slides to review the draft work plan as requested by Council on the latest um, LRM related to that. Um, so the, council, or the city has 62 utility boxes identified by Public Works that could be used for this program. We're specifically looking at traffic signal service cabinets due to their size and location at intersections, allowing for high rates of visibility by all types of travelers. The memo acknowledges some of the opportunities and challenges of the program, but I'd like to highlight that the KCAC or the Cultural Arts Commission opted to wrap service cabinets this year with some of the funding that was provided by council to increase the diversity of art in Kirkland. Public art traditionally has been limited to sculptures and murals, works that require specific technical skills and large amount of sometimes very expensive materials. Cabinet wraps can accommodate art of many styles as long as it can be rendered into a 2D image. So not only can utility boxes allow public art to be diversely located, but they also allow a greater diversity of artists to participate in the program. The image on the slide is of the recently installed work at one of the entrances of the village at Totem Lake. So um, here we have an overview of the KCAC's art selection process. Um, just as a quick reminder for everyone that it starts off with the fact that KCAC has committees of three members for each art project they support. Committees develop the language and review the evaluation criteria for all the call to artists that will be used to solicit interest from artists in producing works for this project. I'd like to note that when we say artists, we both mean professional artists or community members or anyone of interest in, in, um, in producing art for any specific call. The call is issued and we utilize our developed list of local and beyond artists. And when there is a strong community or neighborhood focus, we can add even further neighborhood notification, for example, ensuring our schools are aware of the opportunity to submit works when a cabinet at their entrance is under consideration. The KCAC reviews all submitted applications against the developed evaluation criteria, interviews top candidates, and finalists are selected to produce final works. Those works are then taken to the full KCAC for approval and then council for approval. Once approved, we move forward to installation, for wraps, that means formatting the designs for installation with input from our artists prior to printing and installation. On this slide, we have the newly installed wraps at one of the entrances to Kirkland Urban with some of the members of the KCAC, the artists, and the artist family. This slide shows the draft work plan schedule as it is outlined in the memo with a timeline plan for new cabinets with old style cabinets to be wrapped when they are replaced in the future. We propose clustering cabinets generally by neighborhood to streamline community engagement, both for clarity for the community and ease the impacts on work plans. By utilizing the KCAC art selection process I shared on the previous slide, in combination with a CIP to plan for the work, we can further reduce potential work plan impacts by avoiding developing entirely new processes. In addition, we have wraps going in every other year and in the off year from the Park Lane Sculpture Gallery, which is transitioning from an annual to a two-year program, again, easing impacts on our work plans. 
Also note that any needed code changes for new cabinets as part of developments will be reviewed with the next miscellaneous code update, which we anticipate could be as early as mid-2024. Final slide of the night talks about budget impacts. Before I get into that, I want to share the um, that this wrap is of the newly installed um, piece at the entrance to um, uh, Park at Juanita Village or Park at Juanita Village um, with the artist, KCC member, and Councilmember Falcone who attended the ribbon cutting. The three locations that were wrapped this year cost around $11,500, with $1,500 um, in artist stipends for the three artists, um, which were asked to produce two pieces of work for each location, and around $7,000 for installing all of the wraps. Wrapping all 62 cabinets in Kirkland over the next 20 years with this budget in mind, um, including replacement and um, inflation, is expected um, to cost between $600 and to $750,000 over those 20 years, depending on the amount of art. This is a reduction from what was in the memo as we were able to further refine the estimate that we shared. Uh, the range predominantly comes from the amount of art funded and the amount of artist stipends. Um, the stipend utilized this year was for two pieces of work um, used at one location. It is possible that a different amount could be offered to wrap multiple boxes with one piece of work or other iterations of the program. These estimates and the amount of art provided could be further refined as the program transitions from the new style to the old style replacements. Because of the opportunity for iterations and refinement and without a unique dedicated revenue source, we recommend that estimates are incorporated into the CIP and that the program is evaluated each biennium. And that's all I have for you tonight. I'll turn things back to you and I'm happy to answer any questions. Thank you, Diana. Council questions? Councilmember Falcone. Thank you, Madam Mayor. Well, thank you so much, Diana. You know, Diverse art and public art are a passion of mine. So I was very, very, very excited to see this. I think this came from you know conversations that we've had over the past few years about wanting to just find um, more accessible ways to increase the amount of diverse art throughout the community and throughout neighborhoods throughout the city. So I am so thrilled. Um, I love, love, love the new um, utility box wraps that we already have uh, here in the city of Kirkland, those three that you showed tonight. Thank you for those. Um, so. Anyway, I'm just excited to have this conversation. Uh, it may seem minor, but it is not. It really helps create a sense of belonging to have more diverse art um, throughout the community. Okay, so um, I had a question about, in the memo it mentioned that the, I believe I read that the lifespan of a utility box wrap is shorter than I thought it was. Can you speak to that a little bit? Because in speaking with some community members, you know, and some of my colleagues, they've seen utility box wraps that have lasted and stayed in good shape a lot longer than I think, was it five years, I think, that was mentioned in the memo. Can you speak to that just a little bit more? Yeah, we're finding they last in the, like, good shape status for about five years. Obviously, you can leave them on longer than that, um, but they don't, they, they definitely experience weather out and about exposed like that. So they do experience some deterioration. Um, we have, it's, there is a question as to whether or not it needs to be really replaced at that five-year mark or if we can draw that out. Um, so there's there is definitely some uncertainty there, but we hearing and what we're finding online is that they do last reliably for about five years. And then it's sort of up to the discretion of the um, owner as to whether or not you want to replace them right away or if you want to kind of let them last a little longer than that. Thank you. And can you also clarify in the memo, it talks about how the majority of the utility boxes in the city are anticipated 
to be replaced in the next five to seven years? Do we think that's when they're actually going to be replaced or just kind of when they're at the end of their anticipated life cycle and might be a little bit longer than that? That is a great question for Public Works. Um, and I I think the, the five to seven number is what I've been told from Public Works team, um, but it's possible that it could be longer than that before they're replaced. Um, I don't anticipate that all 62 would be replaced in that two year window. So I'm sure there would be some sort of range over time that they would get replaced. Um, it's also possible that when those intersections get improved or things like that, that there might be opportunities to um, refresh them at a different time. Great, thank you. And the reason that I was asking those questions is because my instinct is to think that, well, let's take care, let's beautify kind of the ugliest utility boxes around the city, right? That we have some shiny new ones. And I was a little bit surprised to see in the memo the recommendation that let's focus on the new ones, given that the lifespan of the wraps are about the, are, are shorter than the lifespan of the majority of the box the boxes that exist anyway. And so I feel like let's go after the biggest need first, which would be the ugliest ones that are in the most prominent locations. And so I just encourage us to kind of rethink that and to think if, you know, with that lens, if there are some of the uh, suggested, you know, the recommendations for how to prioritize, if there might be other ones that, that bubble up to the surface that we could help, you know, in the meantime, if it's gonna be, you know, five to seven or more years till they're replaced, that we could at least make them a little bit less of an eyesore in the interim. Um, so I would like us to look at that lens. Um, also had a question about just how, um, thank you for the timeline in there about the, um, the updates being in mid-2024. So any new utility boxes, I, I would anticipate we would start seeing those pop up like 2025-ish and on maybe. Um, and so wondering as we develop that, what we think that might look like and how we can roll that into the every other year review of art that's submitted to the Cultural Arts Commission. I know that it was mentioned in there, just kind of the staff time and the um, commission's time to put out that call for artists um, and wondering if that would be part of the process to identifying pre-selected pieces of art that could be used for um, folks as they're putting installing new utility boxes, that it would be easier for them we could, you know, I want us to just kind of think through what that might look like. Would we, as a city, pay the artists up front and then, you know, each time it's used, maybe they get a certain fee from the developer or something like that. In addition, I just want us to be thoughtful about that to support the artist and also to streamline the process and minimize the burden on city staff and on the Arts Commission. So um, let's think through that. Overall, I would like to see us um, maybe stretch a tiny bit more on doing a couple more uh, utility boxes every two years, especially given that we're only doing it every two years and the amount of work that I know goes into those call for artists and all the review, like you mentioned with the committees, with the staff time, with the artists, um, and with the full um, commission as well as city council for reviewing those, um, that it, perhaps there's a little bit more economy of scale that we could get there um, and, and squeeze out you know, a few more utility boxes every two years. I think that that would stretch our dollars a little bit more um, and again, help to beautify and, and spread diverse art throughout the community a little bit more. And I think that's all of my notes. My notes are messy, so if I forget something, I'll let you know. I was gonna stop. Thank you. Anyway. <laughs> Councilmember Pascal. Thank you, Madam Mayor. Um, since we're in discussion, maybe, are we supposed to move a re resolution? Mm -mm. No? Is it just a motion? It's just a work line. Oh, okay. 
And then I'm gonna, I have a couple questions and then a couple statements. First off, yeah, I support this work program. It's something that I've wanted to see for a while because you know, it just it was ad hoc in terms of these uh, utility box wraps and it'd be nice just to I think check a few off every so many years. I'm not, I don't see this as like a huge priority um, um, overall, but it's nice to, to make progress on this over time is kind of how I see it. Um, a couple questions for you. In the past, you know, we have this 1% for the arts for, uh, for our capital CIP projects, and we've had difficulty in, in utilizing that in certain types of projects, you know, to where we've, where we've prepared this, like, uh, this, I don't know, medallion, you know, for sidewalk projects and stuff like that. Is it possible to pool that money and use it on utility uh, wraps instead, or do we still have to... I, because I think what we were struggling with is was more about the cost at the time that what could you do that's fairly inexpensive, right? Because the money right. isn't big. This seems like could this be a perfect opportunity yeah, to I, do those? I definitely think there's some ability to do that. You do at some point you have to link the funding to the project. Yeah. So you couldn't, for example, take a street project that didn't have an intersection and take a one percent and put it on an art wrap somewhere in Fin Hill that's not close to it, but. There is some ability to pool in the 1% for art uh, policy that we created. So that's definitely something that we could explore. Okay. Yeah, uh, just something to think about. And then the other question, um, I was thinking actually, Councilmember Falcone raised this one. Um, but you see some of these uh, around schools. And, and one of the questions I got from the community was, well, why not have student art classes, you know, have a competition and, and, and do it? Um, you know, so I, I mean, I don't think we have to say, yeah, that's that's a great idea, but maybe that's something that our commission could think about, you know, as this as this moves forward. That could be that be that could be something fun and kind of provide an identity around around the schools and fun for, for kids. Um, and then I'm just gonna as for future boxes, I'm just gonna go down a tangent real quick here, uh, to plant a seed for a future discussion. I actually don't want to see more utility boxes across the city. <laughs> I, I think that we have a proliferation of traffic signals across the city, and I would like instead to um, you know, not see more traffic signals. I'd rather see you know, other types of traffic control devices, such as roundabouts. Um, and, and that's something that I'd like us to, to think about in the future, uh, particularly as we monitor the function of the new roundabouts at 132nd. I'll eat my words if they don't function as, as well, but uh, I'm, I'm trusting that they will. And, and the reason why I, I mention this is because uh, for those colleagues that aren't aware, WashDOT has a policy, and that's why you see roundabouts installed on highways now and you don't see signals installed on highways anymore. Um, so it's a, it's a roundabout first policy. So it's roundabouts are the expected traffic control. You must prove why they can't be the first solution. And then, only then, can you move to a signal. And that's because roundabouts are consistent with the values and the priorities of the state. Sustainability, resiliency, safety, uh, reduction of speeds, um, all of that. And so I'm, I'm just thinking out loud, if the state can do it, um, you know, perhaps the city should think about that as well. Uh, so I know this isn't the conversation for it, but it just kind of raised it piqued my interest 
and that I don't really want to see more boxes. Uh, I, I would like us to talk about this, though, in the transportation master plan update conversation later this year. Thank you. Thank you. And has anybody ridden, ridden in 100, 130 seconds roundabouts? They're fabulous. Yeah. Councilmember Nixon. I have a, a question for clarification for the city manager. So you, you talked about this 1% um, for the art policy and that it has some provision for pooling and that there has to be some connection to the project. Is that required by state law or is that a city policy? Sort of both. So, so you get into a gray area of, so the example would basically be the Accountancy Act and like using, if you had a big, I'm just going to make up an example, if you had a big sewer project and you tried to use it for 1% for the arts to do a pool it to do a nice sculpture in a park, yeah, you could get an audit finding that says, wait a second, there's no relevance to the sewer, per, unless it's the sewer project also in the park, right, and does something. So you have to have a causal link, but the how far you want to go is sort of like based on audit findings and your own personal policy as, as a city. So we tried to make sure that we kept ourselves conservative as we always do to avoid any audit findings. So um, so there's a little flexibility, but it, it does depend on, and with general fund, there's obviously maximum flexibility. So if it's a completely general fund funded project, you can, you can kind of do whatever you want. So I, I just kind of concur with what Councilmember Pascal was suggesting, which is that if we can create flexibility by amending our own policy, let's do that. Hmm. Policies are made to be amended, right, right? Right, right. So, I mean, obviously, if it was something we had to have Diana go to the state legislature and get amended, that might be a little bit tougher, especially when you're talking about grant funds going into specific areas. Um, but, uh, you know, as we, as we work on this policy, I'd love to look at that sure. issue as sure. well. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, uh, Deputy Mayor Arnold. Thank you, Madam Mayor. Love the discussions tonight, John, when you were, uh, Councilmember Pasco, when you were talking about not wanting to see these, I thought you were gonna go undergrounding, <laughs> which got, had me thinking that that may be another policy we need to look at when we look at transportation master plan or uh, other things, because that may, may be something we wanna do when we do have to have utilities. Um, one question I have for uh, staff is given Councilmember Falcone's feedback on her personal preference of a different set of wraps than the staff recommendation. Do we need to decide on that now, or are we uh, just providing direction that the work plan and the 13 wraps over the next uh, uh, six years is, is something we want to move forward on? I'll give my answer, uh, but it's really up to the council. I think if that is a bit of a flip of, of our priority, but our priority was also just a policy you know, base priority, and it could easily be if the council feels that's the better way to go. So uh, one option might be to say, bring us back, if we use that as the starting point, what would that look like in terms of the first six and the next six and the next six? We could at least do that for you and say, this is where they'd be instead of here. So if you want to see that before we go any further, we could certainly do that. I'm not sure I understand what you're... The, the staff recommendation has identified a set of utility boxes right. that would be that, that they would come back with during the CIP to fund. Councilmember Falcone has suggested some different priorities oh. um, and just wondering, do we want to decide that uh, tonight? My, you know, I came in here uh, prepared to support the staff recommendation. Yeah, I, I think for me, the question is, 
is a condition of an older box such that it won't hold a wrap as well as a newer? That, so that's a question I think we still need to get an answer to in terms of changing the priority from newer boxes. So I think maybe we need a little more information. Go ahead. Can I clarify my mm -hmm. comments on that? My um, comments were more that let's look at kind of a mixed approach where we still have some of the, the existing recommendations from staff, but perhaps look at adding a box or two every two years. One, to save staff time since it's already like a lot of work just to go through the process and we could award another um, uh, grant to an artist or two. And if in doing so to prioritize kind of the the most prominent ugly ones <laughs> that that we think could help beautify. So I think based on that, we could certainly come up with a couple options. Like for example, if you're going to do one at X location, maybe there's two older ones very close to X location, and you could say, what would it take to extend to those two, right, or something like that. And then we would have that discussion at that budget time. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I think that's the key for us is that all this we think needs to happen in budget time where you can decide how many wraps and how much you want to spend. Yeah. And we could say, given how much you want to spend, you can do these many in these locations, right? But we can noodle on that sort of worst first and how that might integrate as well and come up with some options. We know where they all are, so we can right. try to think that through. Okay, so that's a wrap. <laughs> <laughs> I was waiting for that. <laughs> okay, this takes us to item number 10, reports, uh, City Council Regional and Committee reports. Councilmember Nixon. Uh, thank you, Madam Mayor. Um, I'm going to try to tackle the most important proposal of the evening here. Um, on Friday, I forwarded to you an email uh, from a student government officer at Juanita High School via a parent about inquiring about the potential to get signage attached to city signal poles identifying honorary names of the driveways of schools. Um, uh, they had done a bit of research on it and found that Inglemore, Newport, and Bellevue High Schools all have such signage. So all of a sudden, this is a competitive issue between them. <laughs> um, I did a bit more research, which I included in the email, and found that Lake Washington High has an honorary sign, but it's on their private property. It's not on the city pole. And I've since um, discovered earlier today that Bothell High also has honorary uh, names of their street um, right on 522. Um, <clears throat> um, in the case of Bellevue High, the actual name of the city street was changed because part of that entry drive into Bellevue High is public road, but in all the other cases, it's a, um, it's a private driveway owned by the school district. <clears throat> so the signage isn't of the actual street name, it's just a second honorary name on the signage. Um, we do this in the city now, some. Um, I note that at the entry to Juanita High today, we do have signs that say Juanita High School this way. Um, and we also have historic names of many of the city streets on, uh, on our street signs. So these kind of honorary or historic names are not unusual. Um, so my first reaction to this request from the student uh, was that it's reasonable to look into. Um, I think what they're just looking for at this point is what would the process be? 
um, what approvals would they need to get from the school district or the school or the students? What approval would they need to get from the city? Uh, how would the cost be covered? My assumption is they would cover the cost mm -hmm. um, and do a little bit of fundraising to, uh, to do that. You know, I think what this might end up being is like a one or two page policy in the public works policies that say how they handle it. Um, ultimately, I don't think this is every one of these I can't imagine more than a handful of them happening, would end up having to come to the council for approval. I think it's something Public Works would be able to handle reasonably. Um, so the city manager recommended that I forward that to you uh, for consideration um, before the staff spends any time on it, kind of like an LRM, but I don't know that it needs to be an LRM. Um, but I, he may have some additional thoughts on this as well. Um, what, what do you need from the council in order for some investigation of this to proceed? So when, when we looked into this, we don't have any policies that prohibit it. And as Councilmember Nixon said, we, we do allow it. Um, but my thought was uh, we're very, you know, uh, initiative-focused student who contacted you, but we don't really know. I, don't, I can't imagine someone would be opposed to Raven's Way. We don't really know if the rest of the student body knows or thinks about it, and we don't know if there's a school district policy. So my suggestion had been that possibly we bring this up at the Lake Washington School District Coordinating Committee meeting, but yes. I think if they're okay and the high school's okay, there's, it wouldn't be a big deal for us to put a sign up. Uh, but I wanted to make sure the whole council had a chance to just at least think about it and, like I said, maybe ask, maybe ask the Coordinating Committee to bring it up. So. When is the next Coordinating Committee meeting? It is. Oh, great. September 26th. Yeah, it's the next. You week. mean this topic is on the agenda? Oh, cool. We're very responsive here. Yeah. <laughs> well, we, we, we create the agenda, Toby. Oh, yeah. we do. Yes. Okay. <laughs> Thank you. Excellent. Could can I just respond to? Oh, certainly. Uh, when when Councilmember Nixon forwarded that, um, you know, I agree that that this is, this is a good thing to raise, uh, especially if there's interest at the school, at the school and, and the school district. Um, but then he, he, he raised the issue around cost. You know, we have a sign fabrication shop. We, we make street signs here at, in Kirkland. And, um, you know, parents have really expressed to me, just as a, a parent of students at Juanita, just the frustration that the turn lane project has gone on and on and on and on nothing's really happened and it, something starts but it's been it's been a long time and I know it's not it's not our fault there's probably lots of folks to point fingers at but you know that could be a source of goodwill and say you know thank you for your patience we appreciate it um, here's a new street sign so that's something that would be fun to consider I think everybody's nodding heads. Sounds great. Anything further? That's all I have. Thank you. Councilmember Black. Uh, nothing for me. Thank you. Councilmember Curtis. Okay, well, first, speaking about public art, I'm so sad we don't have a troll. Oh. <laughs> How do we get on that list? We need a troll. I haven't gone to Issaquah yet, but I can't wait to go out there. Um, I wasn't able to attend them all. We, and we have a frog. Mm -hmm. A troll would be cool. Um, I wasn't able to attend them all, but I just want to say thank you to the volunteers that put together the neighborhood picnics. It's a lot of work and well appreciated and a great way to build community. 
uh, legislative work group meets for the first time this Friday. And yay, it's going to be a short session. Um, I'm looking forward to City Hall for All and Seesaw Spot Splash. Um, K4C is holding an elected official work session on October 12th at 3 o'clock. I'm interested in going, so we need to decide who gets to go. Um, so who else is interested in going? I'm signed up to go. I did not think about the fact, because as a member of the K4C Outreach Committee, mm -hmm. um, appointed by this council, so I didn't think about it, but I'm looking at the deputy mayor because he's also appointed by this council. <laughs> I'm also saying Council Member Falcone's interested. I'm willing to step back. Um, for the three of you to attend. You know, we can all go to the same meeting. We just can't spend time talking about Kirkland issues. City manager? That's true. It depends. <laughs> uh, or we could notice it. Or you can notice it, right. So it's October 12 at 3. Well, you, you have been instrumental in the working group, right. so I don't want to take your spot. So it's it's not our meeting, and the county right. executive has oh, that's right. had this as right. an elected official work session, not open to the public to encourage frank discussion. Uh, mm -hmm. It's a it's a point of view that I disagree with the executive on, but uh, we we've had that that argument. So, oh. um, and the previous guidance from the city attorney was that we couldn't have a quorum okay. there because it was closed. I personally think that the two people from the working group should go. So, Councilmember Falcone and I can do rock, paper, scissors and figure out who the other person is. Sounds like a plan. Anything further? That was it. Thank you. Okay, Councilmember Falcone. Thank you, Madam Mayor. Um, one of my colleagues mentioned City Hall for All. As we know, that is one of many welcoming week um, events and activities happening. So, there are probably half a dozen on my calendar. I won't list them all, but I'm really excited for welcoming week as I always am. Um, it's one of my, my favorite weeks that we have here on the East Side. So lots of good things happening. Um, aside from that, I just wanna say happy first day of school to all the folks in Lake Washington School District, all the families, all the staff, all the educators. Thank you to our educators and staff for preparing for today. Good luck, families, <laughs> I'll just say that. Um, and yeah, just happy first day of school. Hope everybody has a wonderful school year. Excellent. Thank you. Councilmember Pascal. Yeah, I'll, I just say that had a good break and, you know, looking forward to all the cool events that are going to be taking place over the next few months. It seems like a pretty full calendar. Uh, looking forward to it, but nothing to report. Thank you. Deputy Mayor Arnold. Thank you, Madam Mayor. I wanted to note that on Friday, August 25th, several of us participated in the rally against anti-Semitism. Uh, the mayor, Councilmember Curtis, Councilmember Nixon, and I uh, participated. There was an incredible turnout for folks responding to some anti-Semitic incidents that had happened um, in our, our neighborhoods and wanted to um, thank the uh, group FIRE, Fostering Interfaith Relations on the East Side that Councilmember Nixon is active in for being one of the organizers. Um, it was a, a very uplifting experience having um, such broad community support saying that uh, Kirkland will not stand uh, up. Uh, Kirkland stands against such hate. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, I continue to be very involved in water work of all kind. Um, 
And uh, as a matter of fact, I've got regional water quality meeting, two of them tomorrow. Um, but we are making really good progress on developing an SCA caucus that is committed to the work, understands the body of work, has been a huge learning curve for folks this year. So I am looking forward to discontinuing my membership on RWQC next year, but I am going to join the what's called MUPAC, which is the Metro, anyway, it's a water group. <laughs> anyway, so um, same number of meetings, same, basically same agendas, but working hand in hand with, uh, with Regional Water Quality Committee and keeping another elected voice there. So I think it's important. So I'm excited about that. Um, other than that, there have been community picnics. Uh, I can't believe how many of them some of you guys have been to. Uh, I was able to spend some time at Denny Fest. I'm looking forward to the next two weekends. We've got lots of stuff coming up here with City Hall for All. And then I think, what's up? We have the health fair, too. The, mentioned it. That's right. The health fair is coming right up. So, uh, yeah, we have lots, lots of stuff to finish summer. And with that, I will turn it over to you, City Manager. Thank you. So we do have one short presentation for the Council on multi-factor authentication by our IT Director, Smitha Krishnan. And I have two updates for the Council following that. You can talk slowly, Smitha. We've got 10 minutes to burn. <laughs> <coughs> I have topics after I can talk through. Good evening, Madam Mayor, Deputy Mayor, members of council. I believe this is the last presentation for today, so I was hoping to make it brief, but I can extend it if you want. <laughs> um, so as I had stated in the memo, October is Cybersecurity Awareness Month, and the number one recommendation for most agencies like us is to implement MFA to reduce the risk of cybersecurity threats and attacks, MFA being multi-factor authentication. Um, so we're just in a world where uh, protection with passwords alone is not sufficient. Uh, what we have today is an eight-character password, and even a strong one uh, can be cracked in less than 10 minutes by a good hacker. So we're just not in a very safe world. Okay, so the solution we are implementing, and we've already started rolling this out to departments, is dual security, which is a solution by Cisco. And the way it works is Duo combines your password, which is something you know, with something you have, which could be two, it could be two different methods. One is you could have a, a dual Cisco, um, dual security application on your smartphone, through which you can authenticate, or you could also have a hard token or a UB key, which you would then have to carry with you, uh, very much like a city badge to access a city building. 
Um, so just quickly about what you should expect as a user uh, when you first get enrolled to Duo. Um, it, when you log in for the first time in your day, it, it will prompt you for your username password. Once you go past that, you will get the Duo screen then asking for the second layer of authentication. Um, in that screen, then you can also select um, the option of remembering you for four hours so you're not prompted in the next four hours. That said, if you were to lock your computer, walk away, and come back and unlock, you will be prompted again. And Duo will also prompt you for the Office 365 uh, applications like Outlook, SharePoint. Um, and as we go through this implementation, eventually it will completely replace the O365 authentication that you're used to seeing. Um, just one of the nice features of Duo is that it is AI-based, so it studies users' usage patterns, and as it gets to know what applications you typically use, the number of authentications you receive will decrease. Um, so just expect more authentications in the first week or so, but those will drop off. Um, so for example, when I log in, the application already knows that I'm gonna open Outlook, so I no longer get authenticated for Outlook. Um, our team, uh, the project is being led by Shelley Craig, who's our technical project manager. And our technical lead is Jordan Shump, who is a network analyst in Chuck's team. Chuck and I are backups, just helping wherever we can. Um, I do want to point out a useful resource, which is our SharePoint project site for MFA. We have several frequently asked questions answered here. We also have a four-minute educational video that this team put together that will give you a lot more information. Um, as to how we're going to roll this out to you all, uh, my team will reach out to each of you individually, set up a time in the next couple of weeks, and we will make sure we set it up for you and it will be painless. So with that, um, any questions? Councilmember Black. Is there any reason we can't save Smith's um staff's time by joining in groups of three for this training? Um, or is it actually helpful to your staff to work with us one-on-one? -on -one? It's not much of a time okay. commitment either way, so I'll, we'll just make it easy on you. <laughs> all right, all right, thanks. Councilmember Nixon. Thanks. Um, I've been using multi-factor authentication for city resources for, it seems like, several years already uh, using Microsoft Authenticator. Mm -hmm. So I'm, I'm just curious why we're replacing the Microsoft Authenticator system that's already been working. So Microsoft, the Authenticate tool is only protecting Microsoft O365 applications. That's where you're having to authenticate. Um, this solution is actually going to protect our network beyond that. Um, so we will be protecting our network resources as well. Um, and at this point, we are not authenticating individual applications like Munis, for example, because it has its own Okta. Um, but over time, we will be adding more applications that can be further authenticated. Um, so it's just going to be a more comprehensive solution than Office 365. Okay. Councilmember Curtis. I'm, I'm fine. <laughs> that was my question. Oh. <laughs> you won't have to do both. That's will, the good news. Will we get an authenticator app or will we, be, will we get texts? 
So the application, um, if you have it on your smartphone, is, is in most cases, it's going to be a deny and approve. So it's relying on you to uh, authenticate whether you're the one who's actually logging in. So you would just click approve and it would go through. In some cases, when it's trying to up, um, authenticate to a specific application like uh, Outlook, you will get a three-digit code, which you would enter, and then it would push you past the screen. Where would I get the code? The, um, we will put the, we will get. In the app. Yeah, it'll get it, come to your app. Does and the an duo authenticator app? No, it's a different one. It's a duo security app. You don't have it right now. No, I do. Oh, you do, okay. Because my banks use it. Okay, yeah. Um, so we would just another... set up an organizational account for the city okay. of Kirkland. All yeah. right, let me finish my question. Okay, which sorry. Is, you, so there are multiple different ways that I get requested multi-factor identification. Sometimes it's text, sometimes it's on an app. And, and so I'm getting to this point where I have to look for it in order to identify who's asking for it. You know, I mean, if, if, if I'm dialing into Citibank, I got it covered. But everybody's beginning to ask these questions, so I'm hoping that we are going to figure out a way to sort through it that doesn't confuse all of the different applications that are coming at us. Because okay. I'm like Toby. I mean, I've been using multi-factor for years. Yeah, so we can look at it when we set it up where it's basically intuitive for you to figure out which one would be the city of Kirkland's authentication. But you would not use text, you would just use the app. Any other questions? Thank you, ma'am. All right, thank you. Back to you, city manager. Okay, thank you. Uh, so, uh, two quick updates. One, I think I've been mentioning to you, we've been working hard on a coordinated homelessness response team um, and work product uh, that's leading to a uh, symposium. And you all had a chance to look at our draft website. Um, some of you gave feedback, some of you still can give feedback, but I wanted you to know it's actually live. Um, the landing page is actually up on our website. So if you go to the Kirkland Wild website and you type in homelessness, it'll come up and it has uh, frequently asked questions, a lot of other things. We're gonna continually improve that, but just wanna let you know that it's actually up and running. And uh, definitely more to come on that um, as we go along. Um, I also wanted to give you an update. I did send out an email and I had a chance to talk to folks, but the uh, bids for the PCC uh, site at the Houghton Village have come in um, at or below the budget, which does, uh, by council's action on August 2nd, allow me to go ahead and approve the bids. Otherwise, I'd have to bring them back to the council on the September 19th council meeting. And so every, every week matters at this point to try to, to get that done so that we can uh, get uh, our tenant out of KTUB. And so I will be approving that between now and the next council meeting uh, once we have our final uh, review of the bids. So I just wanted to give you a heads up on that. Um, and then we did get a request, a very good request from Deputy Mayor Arnold about the fact that we have a lot of neighborhood association meetings coming up and some of you will be there for neighborhood association meeting business and others of you might be there with a, a uh, candidate hat on. And so it's possible that more than three of you could show up to one of those community meetings. Mm -hmm. The question was whether or not we needed to post those meetings. Uh, it was a great question. We, we looked at it carefully and... Uh, we can't post a meeting if a primary purpose of the posting is so that someone could go campaign. <laughs> mm. so, um, so what 
we need you all to do is if you show up at a meeting and there's more than three of you and one or more of you wants to campaign, you need to not have three in the room at the same time or four in the room at the same time. So we just want you all to be aware of that. Um, if there's someone there, for example, I'll be at most of these uh, or Will Lindswogs for making a presentation on the parks ballot measure. If someone is there to hear that or support that, that person leaves, then someone else can come in. Or if a neighborhood group schedules a candidate forum, again, you'll just need to be thoughtful about how many of you are in the room so that uh, you don't have four discussing city business, but we can't post them if part of the reason is because of campaigning. So. Are most of these meetings virtual? Uh, not really anymore. A lot of them are hybrid, can be hybrid, but most of them are in person now. So, so if you are a virtual attendee, can you just not turn your camera on? That's a good question. I think you'd probably want to not listen or comment either, right? Yeah, I mean, best practice would be just to avoid the appearance of a potential meeting to not attend, whether you're off camera or not, you would be listening and could be receiving the same information. Hmm. Okay, that's gonna be a little tricky when it comes to Prop 1 meetings. There's no problem with all four people going to the meeting at some point. It's just everybody being in the meeting at the same time and having four there at the same time talking about city business. So what we can do, I'll work with Amy is back tomorrow and just maybe get from each of you individually what meetings you're intent planning to attend so we can get a roster and then we can actually post that for you all so you can see whether there is going to be any conflicts at, at, at any of the meetings. Uh, Councilman Nixon. Well, it, I mean, this has been a problem with both the PRA and the OPMA for a very long time, is how do you separate official city business from campaigning as an incumbent, mm -hmm. right, and from your personal uh, stuff right. as well? Right. And, um, I mean, it's a really tough thing to think about the legislative <laughs> work group uh, trying to, to tackle that, but... Um, the fact is that the courts have not done a very good job of defining how you separate those different things. I mean, my, my feeling is <clears throat> if we're all going to the South Rose Hill Bridal Trails Neighborhood Association meeting for a candidate forum, then we ought to be able to just declare that that is not official city business. It is a campaign function and the OPMA does not apply. But I don't know. Darcy may have a different feeling about that. Oh, I actually agree on the candidate forum <clears throat> specifically since it's not intended to be about city business. It's meant to be about election activities. But with the neighborhood association meetings, those are much broader topics. Um, and so the, that one, specific, those specifically, the specific candidate-only forum, I would think we wouldn't need to limit the number of people. But so anything that's specifically declared to be a candidate forum, you think we're just safe on those? I do think that I think that 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 weighs against it being a public meeting related to city business. Okay. But the neighborhood association meetings, I think my recommendation is to try to limit to three. Thanks. Councilman Falcone. Thank you, Madam Mayor. I just want to clarify that is my understanding that these neighborhood association meetings will contain candidate forums. So they are not separate events that the meet, neighborhood meetings themselves are in part candidate forums. That's the tricky part. I was, I was mentioning at King County, they would just stay outside until 
that moment passed where whoever needed to be in there could step out and then someone else could go in. So in a scenario like that, you could all be there for the candidate forum and then not have more than four stay after the candidate forum or before the candidate forum, right? So just have someone come out and tell you, hey, the candidate forum is about to start as an example. Okay. We'll work it out. It's <laughs> a good question that had not been asked before. So um, try to do our best to maintain flexibility, but keep it um, conservative. Right? Great. Okay. And then uh, just calendar update. That's the only other thing I had was, uh, did anyone have any calendar update questions or comments? Seeing none. Okay. That's all I have, Madam Mayor. Thank you very much. I believe it's time for Luke to go home. <laughs> so I will adjourn this meeting. Thank you very much. Thank you all.